Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Tasteless. Colorless. Shouts and sport and laughter. Health and happiness and life itself. And then, all of a sudden... As water shows its other face, hideous, unrelenting, shrieking its rage, the vicious scourge of mankind, burying life and land under its relentless and merciless depths. This is the story of such water, and its mastery by the determined hand of man. Everything was lovely in Florida, so it seemed. The sun was kind, the surf was fresh, the beaches white and clean. To millions of Americans, it was Valhalla, the nation's playtime paradise, the place where all was right and nothing was wrong. Beautiful, carefree, the land that nature always smiled upon. So it seemed. But once you got past the surf and the shore, the glittering jewel face of the side hard by the sea, there was trouble. Nature was frowning. The trouble was water. Too much of it on one hand, not enough of it on the other. When the rains came, they inundated the flat lowlands of central and southern Florida, overfilling the inland waters, flooding the rich soils, destroying crops, turning hard-earned farm profits into devastating losses, covering towns, ruining homes and businesses and roads, wrecking a desperate havoc that ran into millions upon millions of dollars a year, doing a damage that could never be repaired, Never replaced, never be the same again. Millions of dollars being flooded away, a great treasure literally buried in its own silent grave. And when the rains had left, there was no water. There was drought, arid land, leached and sucked dry. Once lush farmland, now reduced to dry dust by the crazed antics of the elements. When the earth was wrung dry and the only moisture left was in the sweat and tears of those who made the land their living, there spread over the reddened horizons the last climactic blow from the maddened forces of nature. Fire. Across the land it came, 
burning the peat soils, leaving a waste and a desolation that was now almost absolute. And when it was over, it started again. The rains, the floods, the drought, the fire. Central and southern Florida just lay there, waiting helplessly to be soaked and dried and burned out again. And slowly, life was leaving her. Why should it be? Why should it happen here? Happen in a state so amply blessed with splendid resources. Everything needed for prosperity and progress. Why? It was simply the nature of the land itself. Central and southern Florida is barely above sea level. And the heavy rainfall that is so unevenly distributed through the year quickly fills the flat terrain. Then when the water drains off, it dries out quickly under the fierce eye of an all-season sun. Obviously, if the water was in the right place at the right time, if the excess water could be removed in a hurry, then brought in when it was needed, central and southern Florida would flower upon the seeds of its own rich resources. Remove it in a hurry. Bring it in when you need it. A large order for any one spot. But here we're talking about some 15,000 square miles, an area twice the size of New Jersey. Something had to be done and something was. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was assigned the mission of planning and designing a complete project for flood control throughout the district, then proceed to build it. Next, a special public agency was formed by the state, an agency called the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control District. Its job, to coordinate the efforts of state and local interest and provide necessary lands for construction. In other words, help clear the way for the Corps of Engineers. Together, they had their work cut out for them. All that had to be done was build the reservoirs, the channels, the levees, the spillways, the pumping stations, the gates, the saltwater barriers, the whole integrated system of water controls. That's all. The engineers went to work. No time was lost. The first job that was tackled was construction of levees between the Everglades and the coast. 125 miles of them, from just south of Miami, up to a point west of Palm Beach, and on to Lake Okeechobee. This was tough going. The lime rock under the soil had to be blasted out. And many a drill point was dulled in attempts to burrow the way for dynamite. Foot by foot, mile by mile, the work went on. Drilling, blasting, digging, bite by bite, five to eight cubic yards per mouthful. Slowly, persistently gouging the bottom to build up the top. You had to watch your step. Progress usually finds anger in its path, and some of it along the palmettos and in the waters is deadly. It's a long way, 125 miles, when you're moving bite by bite. When it was finished, they turned to the next job and began again, bite by bite. This is a project of mammoth proportions, one that calls for more than 700 miles of new levees throughout the central and southern Florida area. Altogether, the entire project tackled represents one of the largest earth-moving jobs since the digging of the Panama Canal. So the next time you see a giant drag line or pipeline dredge chewing the rock from a project canal, think of the progress that's already been made and the work that lies ahead. Lines on a map are a simple thing. It's out there that the real work's done. Well done.
but that's just part of it. Canals and levees are fine for the overflow, but we've got to control the water, make it do our bidding. This takes pumping stations, spillways and dams all the way from the upper reaches of the Kissimmee River Basin down to the southern tip of the mainland of Florida. That's a large order. A pumping station, for instance, is no sense to build. It's got a big job to do. In effect, it speeds the flow of water just as an electric fan moves the air faster. You've got to get down to bedrock to pour the foundation. There must be nothing flimsy about this kind of installation. Thousands of cubic yards of concrete are shaped by huge forms, and beneath the thick-skinned face of the structure, reinforcing steel gives it a strength that will withstand the winds and waters of the hurricanes and the vicious storms to come. There are many major pumping stations throughout the central and southern Florida flood control project. Right now, this one's the largest. A giant that can remove over 2 million gallons of water a minute. That's right, 2 million gallons a minute. When you figure about 10 or 20 gallons to fill up your bathtub, you can imagine how much water this is. But you've got to have that kind of action to get heavy rainfalls off this kind of land. Gravity just won't do it. Not much to do when you work out here, that is, in the city sense of doing things. But many folks spend many dollars looking for natural beauty of this sort. For the unspoiled wonders of nature, where the sun is clean and the air is fresh. That flapping you hear is the beating wings of wildlife. And the fishing, superb. Knock off work and go catch your dinner. It's a simple life and a sporting one. Especially when you land one like this. But most of the time it's hard work. Plain, hard driving work. Where schedules must always be met. Where the steel and the concrete and the piping and the wiring must all come together within a limit of time and a budget of money. Other structures for water controls are also going up. Systems to regulate the discharge of water. Prevent over-drainage and keep salt water from fresh groundwaters used by the coastal cities. More than 15,000 square miles of central and southern Florida flood control district are being studded by the mechanical restraints of man. The big project makes it possible for folks to complete their water control needs. Water is available in project canals, but they've got to take it out and distribute it. Water that once ran wild. Water that ruined the rich terrain. Water that took lives and land, put disaster in the headlines and death upon the soil. Now, it just waits there, calm, peaceful, ready to do the bidding of man and his machines. Oh, there are still heavy rains. Where the project's been completed, the dams will control them, and the spillways release them, and the canals take them on, sending them to the appointed areas. And they lie there, waiting. So they wait, the waters, there in the great natural reservoir of Lake Okeechobee. Now they wait for the warnings of drought. And when it comes, they go off to spread life among the dried up soils. Life brought on demand. And no longer do the waters inundate these lands. No longer do they rot the crops. No longer do they saturate and destroy the riches in the deep of the land. Downstate, water, now in the conservation areas, irrigates the coastal lands, stops the shrinking of the soil, helps preserve water supplies to cities, draws the wildlife to the protection of its still and quiet surface. Ah, and it's a beautiful bonus. 
wildlife displaced by Florida's burgeoning population has found a home here. Game that now finds sanctuary in a wildlife paradise controlled by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Florida State Game and Freshwater Fish Commission for conservation purposes. Much has been done. Central and southern Florida is no longer nature's fool. The stooge for the impractical jokes of the elements. But the work isn't finished. In fact, it's just really begun. The Army engineers and the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control District won't waste any time getting the job done, however, once appropriations are made. Westward from the St. John's, the Kissimmee River flows south into Lake Okeechobee. Its headwaters are a chain of lakes connected by a number of canals. Work's now underway, which will enlarge these canals to permit a more rapid removal of floodwaters to Lake Okeechobee. And that means enlarging, controlling, and straightening this famous Crooked River so that it can take the water smoothly all the way down to the big waters of Lake Okeechobee. The whole thing, the complete project, once only lines on a map, pencil tracings on paper, is slowly becoming reality, as real as steel and concrete. Slowly, yes, because programs of this immense size take time, and they take people and money and the heart and the will to see that it all comes true. Is it worth it? Well, that's an easy one. Look around central and southern Florida today. What do you see? For one thing, you see cattle country, an empire that has fast become a leader in livestock. Wrangling's no longer confined to the west. The lush grasses of this green district graze some of the finest livestock in America. Cattle that grows fat without supplemental food come winter or summer. So it's cattle country. But that's just part of it. When you've got soil like this is, black and fertile and deep, you can really grow things. These always have been real farmland. The soil, the sunshine, the perfect year-round temperatures have always been here. And so have the rich crops. But the risk has been here too. The gamble against the elements. The probability that the rain would take everything you've grown, everything you've done, and literally turn it into water. Look at it. Once upon a time, this may have been underwater. And later, it could have been dried out as stiff as a rag on a clothesline. Now, it's lush all the time. And the harvests that come out of these warm soils feed many millions of people all over our nation. Out of this land come the many crops of fresh vegetables each winter, when most of the rest of the nation is generally too cold for such produce. It's surprising how many different crops these rich, low soils can grow. And, of course, you could say Florida is the fruit basket for America. Certainly, the 135 million boxes of citrus fruits it ships each year supplies a substantial portion of the country, not to mention the fruits that go into the can instead. Control of the waters, waters that were once a constant source of costly damage, has now added millions of dollars to citrus income alone. Another tremendous benefit from water controls is the attraction of new industry. Before, you couldn't expect manufacturers to select sites that were apt to be flooded or where they might not get water when they needed it. Now they've come, and how they've come, bringing with them thousands of jobs and millions of dollars of additional income. If it weren't for the flood control project, many of them wouldn't be here. All the work on the project has really only begun. Results are already too good to be ignored. $50 million in crop damages has been saved. $50 million. 
This in only a few years of operation of a partially completed project. Think how much more will be saved. How many more hundreds of millions of dollars in the endless future before us. When you get past the saving, think of the making. The livestock industry, for instance, growing even more fantastically since the project was started, is contributing considerably to the assets of the area. So is industry, by millions each year. More tourists have come. Cities have grown. Sport has been better than ever. Families safer than ever. As in all projects of this kind, the Army engineers have a method of figuring the advantages. It's called a benefit-to-cost ratio, a term for the comparison of benefits to costs, benefits that can be expected to occur to the people and to their land. Latest reports to Congress show that in the Central and Southern Florida project, there is now a benefit-to-cost ratio of 4 to 1. For every dollar being spent, $4 are coming back. That's a 400% return guaranteed by documented facts. And as any businessman knows, you can't do much better than that. The work goes on. The drilling, the digging, the placing, the forming. It goes on with the sure and complete knowledge that every dollar, every man hour of labor will be repaid several times over. There's a long way to go yet. The major part of the entire plan for central and southern Florida is yet to be done. But the very economics, the long-range benefits that have already come from what has been done are stark testimony to the need for such progress. Flood control must proceed as fast as humanly possible so that everyone, not only in this particular 15,000 square miles of land, but everyone everywhere can share in the rich results of man's mastery of the elements. Then it shall be that water, once the fierce, uncompromising enemy of this long, wide, low-lying land, will become its greatest ally. The rains may come, but there will be no fear in them. They are the waters of Florida's unfolding destiny, the bright promise of Florida's glowing future. Hi everyone, CJ here, your Renaissance man. In this new dark age in which we currently find ourselves enveloped, back with another installment of Dangerous History. Been a while, but I've been extremely hard at work putting stuff together for this and some other upcoming episodes. I'm at a point right now where the things I'm working on are things that are very highly research and prep intensive. And so my amount of episodes recorded and released has gone down, but I think at least that the quality and depth has been going up. The average length of my episodes has been getting longer, and I've been really doing a lot of in-depth research lately. So I appreciate everybody's patience in there being more time in between episodes lately, 
and just understand these are very in-depth episodes that I've been working on um, research and planning for lately. So I appreciate everyone's patience and continued support through Patreon and other means. And I just really want to make sure everyone understands I've not been like sitting on my hands. I've been very hard at work on all kinds of dangerous history stuff. It's just been the nature of what I've been working on lately that I've not been able to crank out episodes as frequently. So this is going to be episode 141 of the DHP. The episode is going to be Draining the Swamp about the war on the Everglades. You just finished listening to a fair amount of the audio from a film called Waters of Destiny, which was a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers propaganda film made in the 1950s to celebrate their ongoing war that they believed they were winning at the time against South Florida's wetlands. In this episode, we're going to trace that story back, starting over a century before Waters of Destiny was made, and we're going to continue the story up through the end of the 20th century with a few remarks about up to the present, and kind of looking at how did it come to this, that you end up with the United States government's main engineering arm patting itself on the back for essentially wrecking a huge and delicate natural ecosystem. How did this come about? It was a long time coming. And what were the results of all of this meddling? So this is going to be my biggest foray yet into a historical niche that I've touched on in some DHP episodes in the past, but which I've never focused on before to the degree I'm going to hear, and that is what's known as environmental history, which properly defined is basically studying the interaction of humans with the natural environment around them and how this relationship has changed and evolved over time in various ways. Environmental history is something that, as far as I know, few history podcasts really get into in depth, but it's something that I think is important and that I've been interested in for a while. And I happen to be, I think, fairly knowledgeable about the environmental history of Florida, since it's the state I was born in and grew up in and the state I live in currently and literally have lived in all of my 35 years except for two years where I resided in Tennessee in my 20s. And in addition to that, I've long been interested in the natural side of Florida, spent a fair amount of time hiking, camping, fishing, and even a little bit of hunting in the state, in addition to reading all about its history and, in recent years, teaching Florida history. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. It's something different. And the backstory is that I have planned for a while to do a DHP episode on what's known as Big Sugar, which is the handful of large, wealthy sugar interests in Florida that a lot of their prosperity really comes from various types of corporate welfare from the U.S. government. And as part of that, I was going to tell the story of how their area was artificially created by the state of Florida and the federal government through draining various wetlands and things, and that's where Big Sugar operates. And so even the land itself that they eventually came to occupy was created by government action out of natural wetlands. And that's a story I'm still planning on telling in the relatively near future in the next, you know, couple weeks or whatever that episode will likely get made. But as I was working on that and I was like, well, I have to at least tell some of the story of how their area for sugar agriculture was created in the first place. 
And I started to work on that aspect of it, and then I realized, well, that needs at least an entire episode of its own. And honestly, the story of the draining of the Everglades was something I had been intending to eventually do a DHP episode on for a long time. I had thought about that, and I was like, all right, what the hell, this is a good time to do it, to do that before I do the episode specifically on the history of Big Sugar in Florida. So that's what I did, and that's what you're going to be listening to right now. And in particular, um, I, I am bothered by this notion that kind of libertarian-ish, individualist, anarchist-type people who share at least similar beliefs and attitudes on things to myself have to be hostile to some overall notion of environmentalism, of uh, valuing nature for its own sake and wanting to protect it from being totally wrecked. I don't think there's inherently a conflict there. And in fact, I think historically, when you look at it, a lot of the biggest damages done, not all, but a lot of the biggest damages done to natural ecosystems have actually been done by various types of governments. If you want to find some of the most wrecked ecosystems in the world, all you have to do is look at places that lived under communism, and typically you'll find um, degrees of environmental degradation that even the worst, quote-unquote, capitalist nations have never seen. But the fact of the matter is, even in the United States, a lot of the biggest environmental disasters, the government, whether state, local, federal, or some combination thereof, has often had a large role in bringing these things about. Not to say private interests don't contribute in many ways, but I'm bothered by the mainstream environmentalist narrative of the present of the present day, which is overwhelmingly worshipful of government and a belief that it's this wonderful savior that's going to fix all the environmental problems. And it's completely ignorant of the fact that governments have historically screwed up so much of nature. And in some cases, they've done so in ways that realistically private interests probably never could or would have done. And so I'm someone who is very appreciative of nature and, and tend in my heart to be very protective of it. But at the same time, I have a skepticism that governments and these days, sometimes even international quasi-governmental things are the best means by which to seek to protect nature in a true sense of the word. And I also, as I might mention a little bit more towards the end of this episode, I also, because of my affinity for Taoist thought, have a respect for natural ecosystems that in some ways is rooted in Taoist attitudes. And also, I think you can make a case that there are parallels between natural ecosystems running themselves and kind of, you know, self-correcting certain excesses over time and the way that a free market, a truly free market economy, tends to do a better job of allocating resources over time than a centrally planned or managed economy does. So to me, I, I think the attitudes I have towards why a genuinely free market economy is better morally and practically than a centrally planned one or a heavily regulated one is analogous to a belief that in general, especially in the big picture, natural systems tend to be better in the long run than man-made and man-managed systems, which is what the Everglades eventually got turned into. So anyway, this episode ended up being a lot bigger and larger than I ever expected, and it's one of those things where I feel like to do my best work, I have to kind of follow the muse, and sometimes that might mean 
a little bit longer gaps between DHB episodes, but then you'll get a bigger, more in-depth episode than usual and that kind of thing. And in particular, this story is one that very few people really know, but it's very interesting. It's full of very interesting characters, all kinds of tragedies and things that make history interesting as well. And it's a story that I don't think most of you know, really. And that includes, I think, most Floridians don't really know their own history that well. Now, in general, most Americans, and I'm sure this is probably true of people in other parts of the world, um, average random sampling of people are not going to know their history very well. But in Florida, I think there's a lack of understanding of Florida history that is much greater than perhaps in some other parts of the United States. And the reason for that is because so many Floridians are only first or second generations um, as residents of Florida. So there's the old quip, Florida, where everyone is from somewhere else. Up through the early 20th century, Florida was one of the emptiest states in America. And then in the space of a few generations, it became one of the most populated states in America. And through a combination of immigrants coming from other countries and people coming from other states, you end up with a state where relatively few people really have a sense of rootedness and connection. And so as a result, among the many things they're ignorant of is history, including natural and environmental history. A lot of people think Florida is Disney World and don't understand that Florida is Swamps, rivers, spring-fed waterways, all kinds of wildlife, some of which can kill you, as well as horrific storms and brutal heat and humidity for more than half of the year. So anyway, I think you'll find this episode very interesting and entertaining, and I certainly hope so. Real quick, though, before I jump into it, I do have some people to thank for stepping up to support the show via Patreon. Big thanks to John, Terry, George, Christian, and Chris. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the show via patreon.com slash profcj. And I hope that some of you listening will consider doing so, so that I can keep doing what I'm doing here. I really enjoy it, but I need your help. And besides, isn't it preferable for me to read off a few names, say thank you, and ask for some uh, new supporters than for me to try and hawk mail-order underwear or mattresses or any of the other crap that you often hear other podcasts trying to hawk? Well, anyway, let's jump into Draining the Swamp. Let's start off by talking about the geography of the original Everglades before it became significantly altered by man. The seminal word for the Everglades is Paheoki, which means grassy water. The Everglades is often referred to as a swamp, even by people who should know better. Of course, I couldn't resist the title of draining the swamp for this episode, especially given how relatively recently Donald Trump was saying he would drain the swamp of DC. Of course, he Largely has done the opposite so far, but whatever. 
But that made the phrase kind of out there in the ether, so I couldn't resist, especially since it really does kind of describe what was going on. But instead of draining the swamp, meaning this wonderful, virtuous cleaning out of things, I have more of the view of completely wrecking a very important and delicate natural ecosystem. And author Michael Grunwald, whose book The Swamp on the History of the Everglades is an excellent source Michael Grunwald knows better, but still called his book The Swamp. By the way, if you're looking for a highly readable overview with a lot more detail, but covering a lot of the same stuff I'm talking about in this episode, that's probably the book to look for. It's just called The Swamp, and the subtitle is The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. It's a very readable book, and as a result, while it's not by any means the only source I consulted for putting together this episode, it's the one from which I'll probably almost undoubtedly be quoting the most, simply because it's so quotable. It's the best written of the sources I've consulted on all of this. That said, if you want some additional scholarly depth, including more geology and geography and things in kind of a technical scientific sense, then check out the book, The Everglades, an environmental history by David McCauley, which um, is an excellent source as well, though it is, in my opinion, not as well written and thus not as quotable as Grunwald's book. But just real quick, technically speaking, the Everglades really should be considered a marsh rather than a swamp. And the difference is they're both types of wetlands, but the difference is that a swamp is an ecosystem dominated by woody plants, whereas a marsh is not. So technically, there is a swamp that's part of the kind of greater Everglades ecosystem, and that would be Big Cypress Swamp, which is the area kind of west-northwest of the real Everglades proper, i.e. the kind of typical standard Everglades, the bulk of which is marsh rather than swamp. Of course, the writer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who was one of the leaders of the movement to protect and restore the Everglades in the 20th century, famously and lyrically, though somewhat misleadingly and oversimplified, called the Everglades the River of Grass. The grass in question, of course, is sawgrass, whose name is a bit deceptive. It's technically a sedge, not a grass, but um, the saw part is very, very accurate. Um, ask me how I know that. Well, I grew up in South Florida. I grew up in Dade County and then Broward County. I was actually born in Miami. Grew up in Dade County and Broward County, not too terribly far from the edge of the Everglades. And relatively young, probably single digits, I'm not sure exactly how old I was, I was visiting, I believe, the Everglades National Park itself. And, you know, I had heard people talk about sawgrass and, I, you know, a little kid, right? You kind of, you have to go touch the hot stove, right? So I went and ran my hand over the edge of a piece of sawgrass and sure as hell, it lacerated me pretty good. Michael Grunwald addresses the nature of the heart of the Everglades by saying that they were, quote, not quite land and not quite water, but a soggy confusion of the two, end quote. 
for a fair amount of the history, geologically speaking, of the land that we now call Florida, the peninsula was actually a submerged sandbar. And what happened was, as sea levels rose and fell over many, many millennia, Florida was alternately dry land and then undersea and then dry land again, etc. So this is why fossils of sea creatures can be found even in the middle of central Florida, far away from the ocean or even from rivers. So at times throughout its geological history, Florida has been both much bigger in terms of dry land than it is today, as well as much smaller and of course has spent significant amounts of time underwater entirely. The area that we today think of as South Florida, basically from like Lake Okeechobee down to the bottom of the mainland peninsula, only emerged for the last time, you know, before we came to know it, from the sea at the end of the last ice age, so not that long ago. And the Everglades didn't really become what we think of the Everglades as being until only about 5,000 years ago. So it's a fairly new thing ecologically and geologically speaking. Only about 5,000 years ago, in other words, did climate geology and other factors kind of come together to form this very unusual and unique but very large ecosystem. Now, by this point, people had actually been in Florida for quite a while, these kind of paleo and archaic Indians, as they're sometimes referred to. They had moved into Florida when the climate was cooler and drier than what we think of Florida's climate as being today, and at the time there were still lots of, you know, giant mammals walking around, saber-toothed cats, mammoths, all that kind of stuff. And then the climate began to change. It got warmer and much, much wetter. And as a result, people still argue about the exact reasons, but most likely through a combination of human predation and probably a bigger factor being just simply climate change, those giant mammals began to die out. And as Florida became warmer and much wetter, the people living there had to adapt, and they did. They adapted successfully, and the descendants of those early natives of Florida eventually became the tribes, you know, the Calusa, Tequesta, Tamuqua, etc., the other original tribes of Florida at the time of Spanish contact, when the Spanish first started showing up in what they named La Florida about 500 years ago. Now, the reason the Everglades came into being is due to a combination of different factors, including, first, and maybe most importantly, Florida gets a shit ton of rain. It really does. It's hilarious that a place named the Sunshine State gets as much rain as it does. I'm pretty sure Florida gets more total inches of rainfall than any other U.S. state on average. Now, you think of places like up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, co coastal uh, Oregon and Washington State and so on, like that must be where it rains the most. And for sure, they get a lot of rainy days. I think the way it works out, if I remember right, is that those sorts of places up in the Pacific Northwest get more days of rainfall, but more of the rain that falls there is kind of light rain, whereas Florida gets fewer days of rainfall, but it ends up getting more inches of rainfall over the course of the year, because here, much more frequently, literally, when it rains, it pours. And I just finished up here now where I live up in northeast Florida. We just went through probably at least four or five days of 
having major rain and thunderstorms off and on throughout the day, every day consecutively for, like I said, I want to say four or five days and it was significant. And now it's gone and we're having surprisingly cool weather for June here. It's only getting up to about 85 Fahrenheit today and tomorrow. So yeah, a little cool front behind the storm. But from what I hear from people I know who still live down in South Florida, they got it worse. And they're actually dealing with some flooding issues in a few areas of South Florida, which is interesting because it's going to hook into what I'm going to be talking about as I walk through the development of South Florida in this episode. So that's the first thing that kind of sets the stage for the Everglades coming into being is tons of rain. The second is that Florida has Lake Okeechobee, one of its most distinctive features. Lake Okeechobee is a very interesting lake. Like most lakes in Florida, it's fairly shallow. Most of the natural lakes in Florida are fairly shallow. Lake Okeechobee, no exception. Most of it is less than 10 feet deep, but it is a sprawling lake. It has over 700 miles of surface area, making it the largest lake in the American South and the second largest lake that is contained entirely in U.S. territory. The only one that's bigger, of course, is Lake Michigan, which is the only one of the Great Lakes that isn't shared with those damned Canadians. So Lake Okeechobee is kind of unusual in that it's this big sprawling lake, but quite shallow, really, and it had no natural rivers leading out of it in the normal sense of the word river, kind of flowing out of it either to drain into the Gulf of Mexico or into the Atlantic. And then the next thing that kind of set the stage for the Everglades emerging was that, of course, as many of you may know, but perhaps not if you're an international listener, Florida doesn't have large changes in elevation. And this is especially true down in South Florida. Now, in some areas of North Florida and the Panhandle, there are some very small hills, but the state has absolutely no mountains and really nothing that would even be called a medium or large hill by most people from elsewhere. And South Florida has basically no natural hills at all. So because of these things, what ended up evolving was that the Everglades were formed basically as Lake Okeechobee's way of draining excess water during Florida's wet season, which is typically May through October. It's not to say that it doesn't still rain a fair amount the rest of the year, but that's where it's like a lot. So you have this giant shallow lake that when there's a lot of rain, it would just kind of spill over its south bank and then slowly, slowly, because the changes in elevation were so gradual, it would slowly flow southward and westward. And that would be the Everglades that would eventually empty into the Gulf of Mexico. But the ultimate headwaters of the Everglades in its natural state were actually quite a bit further north than Lake Okeechobee. Because even though Lake Okeechobee didn't have any rivers other than the Everglades itself leading out of it, it did have some rivers feeding into it. So the true headwaters of the overall Everglades ecosystem were actually up at an interconnected series of lakes called the Kissimmee Chain in central Florida, kind of up in the Orlando area. So the original natural state of things is from the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes, water would flow down the originally very winding and wild Kissimmee River into Lake Okeechobee. And when water levels in the lake would get excessively high during the rainy season, this water would spill periodically over the south bank of the lake and flow down into the Everglades ever so slowly, creating the River of Grass. 
it actually is like a river in a lot of ways, but of course unusual in that it is a super wide, super shallow, and super slow moving river. The Everglades proper that runs or ran initially from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay was more than 100 miles in length and 60 miles wide. So think of it as a super slow, shallow river. The bulk of the water that emptied into the Everglades would be emptied in turn into Florida Bay, which is the segment of the Gulf of Mexico that's in between the bottom of the Florida Peninsula and the island chain known as the Florida Keys though there were a few natural streams or small rivers that emptied a little bit of this water eastward through the so-called South Florida Coastal Ridge, which, don't let the name fool you, it's only about two dozen feet above sea level at its highest point. These little streams or rivers would then empty into Biscayne Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, but the bulk of the water would continue south-southwest down into Florida Bay. By the way, this area of the South Florida Coastal Ridge was the site of the original kind of nucleuses of the original towns of South Florida, which were begun before significant Everglades drainage. So towns like Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Because there aren't any dramatic fluctuations in elevation in South Florida, the water flows so slowly through the glades ecosystem, that it's said that a drop of rain that fell in the Kissimmee chain of lakes would probably take an entire year to work its way down through to Florida Bay. Now, the Everglades proper, like the genuine Everglades, Everglades, not not the broader ecosystem, are larger than the state of Connecticut, and the entire Everglades watershed system from its headwaters in central Florida down to Florida Bay is actually twice the size of the state of New Jersey. So we're talking about a pretty large region. While the bulk of the Everglades consists of shallow sawgrass prairie, it is dotted with islands and occasional deeper spots of water, too. And as a result, there are a wide variety of niche ecosystems in and around the Everglades, including both brackish and salt water, and even some areas of totally dry land with kind of little forests on it. So the diversity of the flora and fauna throughout the Everglades ecosystem it's still impressive today, but it was absolutely incredible prior to about a hundred years ago. Michael Grunwald eloquently writes about some of this diversity, and he's just scratching the surface. Quote, the diverse habitats of the broader Everglades ecosystem supported an astonishing variety of life, from black bears to barracudas, turkey vultures to vase sponges, zebra butterflies to fuzzy wuzzy air plants that looked like hairy psychedelic squid. The Everglades had prehistoric-looking wood storks, sausage-shaped manatees, mullet that ran in schools three miles long, and four-foot-tall dwarf cypress trees that looked like skeletal bonsai. The Everglades was the only place on Earth where alligators and crocodiles lived side by side. It was the only home of the Everglades mink, Okeechobee gourd, and big cypress fox squirrel. It had carnivorous plants, amphibious birds, oysters that grew on trees, cacti that grew in water, lizards that changed colors, and fish that changed genders. It had 1,100 species of trees and plants, 350 species of birds, and 52 varieties of porcelain-smooth, candy-striped tree snails. It had bottlenose dolphins, marsh rabbits, ghost orchids, moray eels, bald eagles, and countless other species that didn't seem to belong on the same continent, much less in the same ecosystem. End quote. 
There were, of course, panthers, too, which are extremely rare and endangered in Florida today, living in this ecosystem. And, of course, also long before morons and assholes began releasing African and Asian pythons into the glades, there were a large variety of native snakes living in the ecosystem as well. Fish flourished in the glades, of course, and the areas where the glades emptied into the sea were particularly diverse and productive in terms of both fish and shellfish and variety of other things as well. And you can jump all the way back to DHP episode 71 to learn more about the Calusa Indians, who were the indigenous people who lived in the region back when the Spanish first started exploring and colonizing Florida. Those estuaries where the Everglades emptied into the sea were just so productive that the Calusa were able to have a large, complex, sedentary society without having really any agriculture. And to this day, even in their diminished and damaged state, these areas where the glades meet the sea are still some of the coolest fishing spots in Florida and still a great fishing spot considered globally. And not only that, but these estuaries are vital to a lot of the health of the seas around them because they act as nurseries for all sorts of young fish. And you find a lot of species in those areas, which are also characterized by lots and lots of mangroves where the Everglades empty into the ocean. You find a lot of species as well that can move back and forth between fresh and salt water. So things like snook, tarpon, bull sharks, etc., It's just a wonderful place to fish. And of course, a hundred years ago, the abundance would have dwarfed anything today. Of course, even today in its much disrupted and shrunken state, the Everglades produces an incredible variety of plants and animals. But that was even more so the case exponentially up until the late 19th and early 20th century, which is when Americans first started to fuck it up. Now, the Calusa, and then later, after they were pretty much wiped out by European diseases, the Seminole, who later came in, had lived in the Everglades and did a lot of hunting and gathering and fishing in it. And in the case of the Seminole, even a little bit of agriculture in some areas, but neither the Seminole nor the Calusa had had the numbers, the technology, or the desire to drastically alter or harm the ecosystem in this significant way. They would make little adjustments to their areas in minor ways to try and improve, you know, their food production systems or whatever. But they never attempted, nor did they really have the means to do, you know, drastic alterations of things like how the water flowed, etc. Another important thing to mention is that in its natural state, the Everglades was low on a lot of types of kind of aquatic fertilizer um, chemicals, for lack of a better term. And in particular, they were pretty much devoid of phosphorus. And so the sawgrass and much of the other vegetation that flourished in the Everglades had evolved to live in those conditions of very clean, pure water without a lot of phosphorus or other things in it. And so as a result, when eventually um, big agriculture comes into the land immediately south of Lake Okeechobee, their runoff of fertilizers and other chemicals into the Everglades began to wreck a lot of havoc on the ecosystem. And really, other than the drainage itself, it's one of the most damaging things that's been done to the glades. Now, you might not think of it this way today, but for centuries, Florida was an imperial frontier where various contenders kind of battled to control it. And as a result, Florida changed hands numerous times from the 16th through the early 19th century. 
Of course, the Spanish taking it over from the original inhabitants, at least claiming to, and then it changed hands as a result of the Seven Years' War from Spain to Britain, then as a result of the American Revolutionary War from Britain back to Spain, and then eventually it ended up in the hands of the United States. But there was very little white presence in South Florida throughout this time, and there was almost no white presence in the Everglades region. And like I said, the native presence, first the Calusa, and then after them the Seminole in the Everglades, didn't really damage or alter anything significantly. So when Florida ended up politically in Team America's hands in 1821, the Everglades were pretty much, for the most part, as they had been for around 5,000 years. By the way, just as a side note, it's interesting to think about. Florida, technically speaking, was under the flag of Spain for longer than it's been under the United States' flag so far. But after all this, it would end up taking really relatively little time in the grand scheme of things for Team America to begin messing with the Everglades. By the way, if you want to jump into the Wayback Machine, the Way Wayback Machine, see DHP episodes 23 and 24 for detailed coverage of how Team America took over Florida in the first place at the center of which was the so-called First Seminole War, and then also coverage of the Second Seminole War, which was the longest and most expensive Indian war in American history, and was the war in which Team America attempted to ethnically cleanse the territory of Florida from the Seminole Indians. Where we're going to pick up the story is kind of in the process of that Second Seminole War and talk a little bit about how that touched South Florida. Because the Seminole Indians were not originally residents of the Everglades area. They were originally residents of kind of north and central Florida, and they only ended up in the Everglades as they were kind of chased down that way by the U.S. military. And as the Second Seminole War was winding down, a guy named Henry Perrine had a vision for what South Florida could potentially become. Henry Perrine was a doctor and a horticulturalist, and served for a while as U.S. consul to the Yucatan region of Mexico. In some ways, he was a visionary of kind of future possibilities for Florida's development, but he was also, as we'll see, a very, very unlucky man. He was born in New Jersey in the 1790s, and in his mid-twenties, he moved to the South after he accidentally poisoned himself with arsenic, after which he found he couldn't stand cold weather. And that's not the end of his bad luck. He did some important studies contributing to understanding of the usage of quinine to treat malaria, and he was also involved with helping to get some funding for the Smithsonian Institute early on in its development. And for 10 years, from 1827 to 1837, he served as, like I said, a U.S. consulate to Mexico, during which time, again, he was very unlucky. He was bayoneted by a Mexican soldier outside of a banquet because he didn't have his identification papers with him at the time. He just wasn't a very lucky guy. Another thing he did while he was in Mexico at the urging of the U.S. government, is he began working on studying tropical plants and trying to figure out useful ones that might potentially flourish in the American Deep South. During this period, he began corresponding with some of the very few white people who lived in South Florida at the time, including the mayor of Key West, which Key West at the time was the only real town in South Florida that contained more than a handful of people. And from these letters back and forth, he became convinced that lots of tropical plants would flourish 
better in South Florida than anywhere else in the United States. So when he returned to the U.S. from Mexico, he managed to get himself a land grant in South Florida on which he planned to experiment with tropical crops. However, he didn't get to work on this piece of land right away because the Second Seminole War was still going on, and so he decided to live for the time being in the Florida Keys. So he lived with his family in the Florida Keys and set up a tropical nursery there to begin experimenting with different tropical plants. Perrine is credited as being the first person to bring mangoes and avocados to South Florida. So he was in many ways a man ahead of his time regarding the possibilities of South Florida for producing tropical products, as well as specifically his belief that the Florida Everglades could be drained, and if that was done, they could be successfully developed and farmed. Michael Grunwald writes this in his book, The Swamp, about Perrine's vision for South Florida's possible development. Quote, He foresaw a tropical paradise supplying fruit, vegetables, and sugar for America's stomachs and hemp for America's ropes, while attracting invalid tourists who might otherwise winter in France or Italy, and pioneers who might otherwise settle in Cuba or Texas, end quote. Perrine even referred to South Florida as, quote, the most desirable district in the Union for the physical enjoyments of the human race, end quote. Well, I suppose if you ignore tons of biting insects, as well as other dangerous wildlife, giant thunderstorms including hurricanes, and massive heat and humidity for a good chunk of the year, I suppose if you either ignore that or are cool with it, then I guess he's right. But Perrine would never personally see any of this really begin, because like I said, he was just so damned unlucky. And on the night of August 7th, 1840, a group of renegade Seminoles under the leadership of a particularly brutal and bloodthirsty leader named Chakeka, they attacked Indian Key, where Perrine lived with his family. Perrine helped his wife and children to escape through a trap door in the bottom of their house, but he himself was caught and killed in his house, and the Seminole then set his house on fire. A few months later, U.S. troops managed to track down Chakeka and get him, and they shot him, scalped him, and hung his body from a tree. To be fair, that's the sort of thing that Chakeka and his group had done to white people in South Florida on multiple occasions. It was a very brutal back and forth. So Perrine had these ideas of growing tropical fruits, draining the Everglades, developing South Florida, but didn't live to see even step one of that accomplished. But there's now a town called Perrine in South Florida that's at the site of where his land grant was. Now, in the aftermath of the three Seminole Wars, which the last one wrapped up basically in the late 1850s, not long before the Civil War began, by the end of all those conflicts, there were very few Seminole left in Florida, perhaps only a hundred or so. And they were mostly in the Everglades, where the U.S. military had chased them into in the Second Seminole War, and which the U.S. military had invaded in an attempt to drive them out during the Third Seminole War. So basically, during that Third Seminole War, U.S. troops carried out search-and-destroy missions into the Everglades that were mostly unsuccessful and which made the troops very miserable. They were the first attempts by whites to really kind of explore the Everglades, but they found it a pretty horrible experience. After dealing with some of these expeditions, U.S. General Alexander Webb wrote, quote, This country should be preserved for the Indians, and if the fleas and other vermin do not destroy them, they might be left to live. I could not wish them all in a worse place, end quote. And so there ended up being kind of a de facto truce where the Seminole who remained in Florida, who were not either killed or shipped out to Oklahoma, they 
would kind of stay in the Everglades and not bother whites in South Florida. And in return, the U.S. military would just kind of ignore them. Eventually, many Americans would be sold on the concept of Florida, or the Florida dream, as it's sometimes been termed by more recent Florida historians. And a lot of this has to do with the vision of Henry Perrine and a few other early people. And in the process of pursuing that dream, this idea of a tropical paradise, millions of people in pursuing that dream would contribute in ways large and small to ruining a lot of what made it enticing in the first place. The idea of a fairly lightly populated, laid-back tropical paradise, a Garden of Eden, which, if this vision was ever true, and I think it's kind of made up, I mean, you got brutal heat and humidity, tons of bugs, dangerous wildlife, horrific storms, etc. But even if you set that aside or if that doesn't bother you, if it ever were true that Florida was a laid-back tropical paradise, certainly that concept became ever more problematic once the place started getting overcrowded and overdeveloped and all of the things that made that Garden of Eden ecosystem what it was came under assault. Another American who early on believed that South Florida had great potential, if only something could be done about those damned Everglades, was a man named Buckingham Smith. In the mid to late 1840s, the presidential administration of James K. Polk, while committed to expanding America, was kind of distracted from Florida by issues of war with Mexico and other big things happening out west at the time. But some people were determined to make Florida a priority, and one of these was a man named James Westcott. James Westcott was one of Florida's first two U.S. senators when Florida became a state in 1845. And he really wanted the Everglades to be explored and to be drained in order to fast-track Florida's growth and development. So Westcott began pressuring the Polk administration until they agreed to kind of look into the Everglades. And the guy who got this job of looking into the Everglades was this character Buckingham Smith. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer who lived in St. Augustine, which is where I currently live and where I've lived off and on for 14 of the last 17 years. And in 1847, Buckingham Smith was tasked by the U.S. Treasury Department with doing the first official survey of the Everglades. Michael Grunwald describes Buckingham Smith as follows, quote, He was not an engineer, surveyor, or scientist. He was a lawyer, politician, citrus grower, and historian, an accomplished but eccentric aristocrat, a slave owner who set up a foundation to benefit St. Augustine's blacks after his death. End quote. So interesting character, but a, kind of a curious choice to survey the Everglades and kind of report back on what to quote unquote do with them. Um, he was also, by the way, the most important American in kind of discovering and preserving a lot of Florida's earliest historical records by Europeans. He basically discovered and translated some very early Spanish sources that had been kind of, you know, gathering dust while he was serving as a diplomat in Mexico and in Spain, he just kind of managed to discover some of these sources and bring them to light and translate them. So interesting guy, smart guy, but kind of a weird choice for this particular job. Smith spent five weeks exploring the Everglades, but he really only scratched the surface of it. And at the time, the Everglades encompassed over 6,000 square miles. And he kind of, you know, looked around the edges of it a bit and went up a few of the more navigable little streams and things. but. In the grand scheme of things, that's hardly enough to really understand and make recommendations 
about such a huge, complicated thing. But from his observations and from talking to some of the officers who had led troops into the region against the Seminole Indians, he concluded somehow that the Everglades could be drained for a cost of between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars, and that if this were done, it would create many, many thousands of acres of good farmland. His report is an interesting source. It was delivered in 1848 and wrote of the Everglades at times in almost poetic language. Quote, Imagine a vast lake of fresh water extending in every direction from shore to shore beyond the reach of human vision. Lilies and other aquatic flowers of every variety and hue are seen on every side in pleasant contrast to the sawgrass. The profound and wild solitude of the place, the solemn silence that pervades it, Add to awakened and excited curiosity, feelings bordering on awe, end quote. He also did voice some concerns about the soil's potential suitability for agriculture if it were in fact drained. Quote, this deposit is exceedingly light and when dry and broken to pieces becomes an impalpable powder. If it should be found to be a good compost, its speedy exhaustion and its liability when dry and exposed to the surface to be removed by the winds are obstacles to its extensive, successful use in the cultivation of sugar, rice, tobacco, cotton, or corn that should be anticipated, end quote. And that actually is going to end up being somewhat prophetic when some pieces of this thing are drained and put under the plow. But nonetheless, despite having some poetic observations of the place's natural beauty, and despite having some concerns about how good it really would be for agriculture, he nonetheless advocated draining the place. He included in his report written testimonials by officers who'd commanded troops in the Seminole Wars, several of whom specifically argued that the Everglades, if drained, would be the best land for cultivating sugarcane in the entire United States. And Smith himself, in the body of the report, he balanced his occasional nice poetic words about the Everglades' beauty and wildness with notions that were much more typical of kind of 19th century and early 20th century attitudes towards wetlands. So, for example, he wrote, quote, The Everglades are now suitable only for the haunt of noxious vermin or the resort of pestilent reptiles. The statesmen whose exertions shall cause the millions of acres they contain to teem with the products of agricultural industry, to be changed into a garden in which can be reared many and various exotics, introduced for the first time for cultivation into the United States, whether necessaries of life or conveniences or luxuries merely will have created a state." End quote. Now, when it came to how to drain this thing, based on his observations and anecdotal evidence and lack of real engineering expertise, Smith concluded that because the Everglades was a little bit above sea level in elevation, simply increasing the paths for water to run out of the wetlands would cause them to dry out just by the working of gravity. He said that what should be done is that the natural rivers and streams leading out of the Everglades should be made deeper and wider, and that canals should be dug running out from Lake Okeechobee, which, remember, is the main source of the Everglades' water. Um, canals should be made running from Lake Okeechobee out to the Gulf of Mexico in the west and out to the Atlantic Ocean in the east in order to lower the level of Lake Okeechobee. He believed that these things would drain the Everglades and that it would be a modest cost. Again, no more than half a million dollars at most to do. 
Historian David McCauley points out that the Smith Report had, at its kind of core fundamental premise, an idea that would end up being equally central to the future studies that were done in the Everglades and if and how to drain it and so on, which were conducted in 1911, 1912, 1913, 1927, 1948, etc. These reports all shared the same basic belief that by properly quote-unquote managing the Everglades, Florida could continue on a path of basically limitless growth and development. Now, Florida's Senator Westcott seized upon Smith's report and began using it to try to get a bill through Congress that would transfer 8 million acres of the Everglades from the federal government's hands to the state government of Florida, so that Florida could then drain and sell those lands. However, Senator Westcott's bill was stopped by, of all people, Westcott's fellow Democrat and fellow Florida Senator, David levy Yuley. David levy Yuley is a very interesting character in Florida's history, and in American history for that matter. Yuley was, along with Westcott, Florida's other first senator, and he was also the first Jewish member of the U.S. Senate, although by this time he was Jewish only in terms of ancestry, because he had converted to Christianity, I think, as a young man. Very interesting character with a very non-typical background for a high-level Southern politician in antebellum America. His ancestors were Spanish Jews who had left during the Inquisition era and fled um, first to North Africa, then to the Caribbean, where David's father built a successful lumber business. David himself was born on the island of St. Thomas in 1810, and after the U.S. acquired Florida, his family moved there, and David's father was able to acquire a large estate in North Florida. Now, as a young man, David became estranged from his father for a variety of reasons and wound up in the town of St. Augustine, where he became a self-taught lawyer, something that was still possible back then. You could kind of learn on the job, kind of apprentice your way to being a lawyer without having to spend years and years in law school. When he was only in his 30s, his early 30s, he entered into politics and ended up becoming Florida's territorial representative to Congress, while Florida was still classified as a territory. When Florida became a full-fledged state in 1845, David levy Yuley became one of its first two senators, again, the other being Westcott. Now, from that point on up through the Civil War, Yuley was a staunch Southern Democrat, a defender of slavery and other Southern interests, and when secession happened, he supported it and resigned his uh, Senate seat when Florida left the Union. By the way, David Levy Yuley was a second cousin, I believe, of another famous Jewish Southerner of the time, Confederate Secretary of State Judah Benjamin. Now, like I said a minute ago, Yuley stopped Senator Westcott's Everglades bill in the Congress, not because he had a problem with transferring those lands from the federal government's hands to the state of Florida's, but he thought it didn't do enough in that regard. He wanted all of Florida's wetlands, not just the Everglades area of South Florida, all of Florida's wetlands, which at the time was a huge chunk of the state's territory, to be transferred to the state for the purposes of what they called back then and right up through the early 20th century, reclamation, which basically meant drainage. Now, the reason David Levy-Uly wanted this done was for his own form of corporate welfare. 
You see, Yuli owned a railroad company in Florida, and he wanted as much land as possible transferred from the federal government to the state. That way, he could then get the state to give land grants to railroad companies as a subsidy for railroad construction. These kinds of schemes were very common in American history throughout the era of railroad building where you would get the state, local, or in some cases later on, federal government to give railroad companies a certain amount of land per mile of track they laid or whatever. And it's essentially a form of corporate welfare. So instead of Westcott's proposal to simply transfer the Everglades, Yuley supported what eventually turned into the Swamp Land Act, of which there would ultimately end up being three in the years leading up to the Civil War. The Swampland Acts of 1849, 1850, and 1860 transferred wetlands that were still considered in the public domain from federal and state control, not just in Florida, but throughout the country, so that states could then sell the wetlands and use the money from selling them for reclamation, for draining the swamp. Again, today you hear reclamation, you probably envision something like, hey, letting the land revert back to its natural state. But in the 19th and early 20th century, reclamation meant altering the landscape to make it better for human use. And that might mean kind of urban development or it might mean agriculture. Now, obviously, applying this concept of reclamation, making land more suitable for humans to the case of wetlands, clearly that means making them into dry lands. The state of Florida used these swampland acts to get its hands on over 20 million acres of wetlands in Florida, which was actually close to 60% of Florida's total land area. In 1855, Yulee succeeded in getting the Florida legislature to create something called the Internal Improvement Fund, which would give railroad companies subsidies in the form of nearly 4,000 acres of swamp and $10,000 of bonds for every mile of track they built. Yulee's railroad company laid a track from Cedar Key on the Gulf Coast to Fernandina on the Atlantic Coast. And Yulee, who was chairman of the Senate Naval Affairs Committee, even got funds appropriated to dredge out the port at Fernandina to make it an even more attractive hub for his railroad. So this guy is quite a master of using both the state and federal government to help out his personal business interests. However, Yulee's railroad wasn't finished until, like, right as the Civil War was about to start. In fact, I think it was completed about a month before Fort Sumter. So, as a result of the war, Yulee's railroad, as well as the others that had been built in Florida in the antebellum period, went broke and ended up being acquired by the Florida Internal Improvement Fund after the war. However, during the very corrupt years of Reconstruction, in the 11 or 12 years or so following the end of the war, the Internal Improvement Fund sold Yulee's Railroad back to him in a deal that Michael Grunwald describes as follows, quote, Yulee and his partners repurchased the Florida Railroad for a song, foisting its debts on the state while looting its land holdings, raking in windfall profits while the state was begging their bondholders to accept 20 cents on the dollar, end quote. The Internal Improvement Fund actually made a lot of shady deals during the Reconstruction era, including massive land grants. And so as a result, by the time Reconstruction came to an end in the late 1870s, 
Florida's internal improvement fund was broke and kind of freezed. It was tied up in litigation because of the various shady and problematic deals they had made, the promises they had made and so forth. And so from the state government's point of view, the continual development and growth of Florida was being hobbled by the fact that the internal improvement fund was essentially broke and couldn't do anything until it first paid off its debts. So by the start of the 1880s, Reconstruction was over in Florida, and the brief reign of Republican politicians in the state was finished. In fact, Florida would not elect another Republican governor until the late 1960s. Now, despite all the dreams and schemes of the Internal Improvement Fund, in the words of Michael Grunwald at this point, quote, the Everglades was still the Everglades, end quote. In 1880, there were 37 Seminole families still living in Florida, distributed amongst five communities scattered around Big Cypress Swamp and the Everglades. And they were doing reasonably well for themselves by this time, after a few decades of being left alone. They were growing crops, raising livestock, and hunting and fishing very effectively without having to worry about drawing attention and then being attacked by the U.S. military. And so they had adapted to the Everglades pretty well. Some of them, interestingly, were even growing sugarcane and had constructed a small sugar mill for themselves, which produced just enough for themselves to use. Now, despite the fact that the sugar they were growing was supposedly of high quality, they just were not interested in going into the sugar business. They just kind of wanted to be self-sufficient and to be left alone to do their thing. The Democratic politicians who retook Florida at the end of Reconstruction, tended to be fiscal conservatives, and they wanted to undo a lot of the big spending and debt accumulation that the Republican Reconstruction-era state government had done during the decade following the Civil War. So in 1881, Florida's Democratic governor, who was a man named William Bloxham, came up with a deal to try to bring Florida's Internal Improvement Fund into what they would call fiscal rectitude and to spark some renewed development and growth in Florida, which at the time was, believe it or not, the fourth most empty state in the U.S. And South Florida in particular was almost totally empty at the time, even taking the seminal presence there into account. Now, of course, things are quite different. South Florida is one of America's top, most densely populated metro areas, and the state of Florida is currently the third most populated U.S. state after only California and Texas, both of which are significantly larger than Florida in terms of landmass. So, yeah, Florida surpassed New York, which used to be in third place not too many years ago, and New York's now fourth. So basically, Bloxham is trying to undo this situation wherein the Internal Improvement Fund is kind of frozen. They're trying to kind of entice capital and development into Florida by selling and giving away land, but they can't start doing this unless they can figure out a way for the Internal Improvement Fund to settle its debts, pay off its uh, bondholders. So Bloxham ended up looking to a wealthy northern businessman named Hamilton Diston, to be Florida's angel investor. Diston's an interesting guy. In 1881, he was only 36 years old, but he was very wealthy. He recently inherited a substantial family fortune, and his father had built a very successful business manufacturing saws in Pennsylvania. 
Young Hamilton branched out from there into investing in many other things, including real estate, mining out west, a chemical company, and various other things, to name a few. And he began to be interested in Florida after he visited the state as the guest of his friend and fellow wealthy northern businessman Henry Sanford, who founded the town of Sanford in central Florida. Diston saw in Florida's wetlands the same thing that Buckingham Smith had seen, which was huge potential if only they could be made dry lands. So in 1881, Diston made a deal with Governor Bloxham. Diston would drain a huge amount of Florida wetlands, somewhere around 10 million acres, and if he did that, he would get half the land that he had drained. But the Internal Improvement Fund also needed some cash in a hurry to settle its debts, and so they made a deal in addition to that with Diston, whereby Diston would give the Internal Improvement Fund a million dollars in return for purchasing four million acres of swampland outright. Now, this would settle the fund's debts and allow the fund to go back into the business of selling and giving away other lands that were in the state government's hands. This deal also made Diston at the time the single largest landowner individual in the world by total acreage. Now, most of the land that Diston purchased was the area that's the ultimate headwaters of the Everglades. The land that he purchased outright was in central Florida, north of Lake Okeechobee, kind of the region of the Kissimmee Chain and Kissimmee River area, and then a little bit to the southwest of that as well. Just six months after the purchase, Diston sold half of the land at a 20% profit to a wealthy British businessman and politician named Sir Edward James Reed. Now, Diston's deals caused a huge amount of optimism and speculation in Florida real estate and really led to Florida's first big real estate boom, of which there have been too many to count since. A lot of the PR and advertising of the time period, including Diston's own, that was hawking Florida land to people in the northern U.S. and other parts of the world, was completely full of shit. It, I mean, you read it, it makes you, like, want to laugh. They were acting like... Florida not only had mild winters, which most years is true, but they would then go on to lie about how brutally hot and humid the summers are, and they would lie about how wet the place is. They would even lie about the bugs, characterizing Florida as kind of bug-free, which is the opposite of reality. And this really kind of began the great American tradition of bullshit surrounding what Florida's really like. People to this day talk about, it's got nice weather. Well, depends what you mean by nice. I've lived here for 33 of my 35 years, and I'm not so sure about that. If the only criteria you have for nice weather is, it doesn't snow here and it rarely gets below freezing, then fine. But if that's your only criteria for nice weather, I think something's wrong with you. Now, what ended up happening to Distance Project and to Distant is kind of an interesting story. So basically what's happening is the state government is trying to outsource the actual physical project of draining the wetlands to private interests via distance. So he's buying land outright with the understanding that he will drain and develop it. And he's also got this deal where if he drains additional acreage, he gets to keep half of the land that is drained, the other half being in the hands of the state to give away or sell. Diston and the engineers working for him intended to drain the Kissimmee River Basin north of Lake Okeechobee and 
to do that so that they could then lower the overall level of Lake Okeechobee and begin the process of draining the Everglades itself. So the land that Diston purchased outright was mostly north of Lake Okeechobee, but the land that he looked to drain to get additional acreage was largely basically the Everglades. Now, how to do this? Well, they planned to build a bunch of canals in the Kissimmee region and to straighten out the Kissimmee River itself, and then to run canals out from Lake Okeechobee to drain it into the sea, running one west to the Gulf, another east to the Atlantic. Some elements of this plan being kind of similar to what Buckingham Smith had proposed back in the 1840s. However, Diston did not have, even though he was a very wealthy guy, he didn't have enough funds to do all that at once. So he decided to start off by doing some kind of smaller scale localized canal building and to try to drain some chunks of land, which he could then sell for a profit and use those funds to build ever more bigger canals and other drainage apparatus. And it was Hamilton Diston who first brought in dredges to try to dig canals in central Florida. Michael Grunwald described these dredges as follows, quote, Dredges would make it possible to grow crops and build houses in wetlands, and most of South Florida was wetlands. The dredge itself was a lumbering hunk of industrial-age machinery, and the engineers, boilermen, and firemen who operated them were a rough and resilient bunch, often spending months in the marshes without seeing dry land or another human being. Dredging technology had come a long way in the half-century since men with oxen had dug the Erie Canal, but cutting trenches through the wilderness was still a dirty, labor-intensive job. The steam-powered, smoke-belching dredges were rickety floating factories that looked like giant erector sets, supporting rotating chains of buckets that scooped up muck and squirted it to the side. They were so unwieldy, they could only be towed on windless nights, and Diston's men often had to build jetties and dams to keep them afloat. End quote. So yeah, talk about a dirty job. In 1883, Diston set up a 20,000-acre sugar plantation at the present-day site of the town of St. Cloud in central Florida. And within a few years, his sugar plantation was producing what were then record figures for an American sugar plantation. And he continuously expanded his operation when the federal government instituted a two-cent-per-pound sugar tariff. So in the first few years of his operations, things were looking pretty rosy. But within a few years, as flooding returned to some areas that Diston had supposedly drained, some people in the state government began to criticize and question the deal and Diston's handling of things. And they began to say that he'd not really held up his end of the deal regarding the draining of Florida's wetlands. By the early 1890s, Diston had only dug about 80 miles of canals, but he had received title to 1.6 million acres of land. Now, at the time, it appeared that the Kissimmee Basin was drying up, but really what was happening and what a lot of the things that were where it looked like Diston was creating dry land, it was really kind of exaggerated because there was a cyclical drought happening at the time. And it was really the drought more than what little dredging Diston actually accomplished that was causing things to seem more dry in a lot of these areas. By the early 1890s, Diston had not dug a canal eastward out of Lake Okeechobee, and he'd not dug a single canal south of Lake Okeechobee anywhere either. He'd only dug one canal going westward out of Lake Okeechobee, connecting the lake to the Caloosahatchee River that already existed. And 
from there the waters would empty into the Gulf. But what ended up happening was when the drought that was going on in the 1880s ended and Lake Okeechobee's water levels rose back up to what kind of they had been before, the canal that Diston had built caused the Caloosahatchee area, the kind of basin of the river, to flood pretty badly. So by the late 1880s, early 1890s, Diston really hadn't accomplished all that much in the grand scheme of things. An 1887 state report on Diston's progress on things had rated it to be mostly a failure, and it said that Diston basically hadn't held up his end of the deal in terms of draining wetlands, and that, again, keeping in mind that a lot of the appearance of things drying up was simply due to a temporary drought condition, Diston had in reality only drained probably about 80,000 or so acres of wetlands. Diston responded to these criticisms and some state politicians calling for actions to be taken against him in some way by working out a deal with the state whereby he'd be able to keep all the lands he currently had claim to in return for him investing another 200 grand in improving the canals that he had dug so far. But Diston was never able to make good on a lot of his plans and claims because his business interests were hit very hard by the Panic of 1893 and the resultant Depression that followed, which actually was the worst depression in American history up till that time. To make matters worse, the U.S. tariffs were revised in 1894, and there was a cut on the sugar tariff, and this hit his sugar plantation. And then there were two nasty freezes that hit Florida in 1895, which damaged some of his other agricultural operations in Florida as well. Diston died in 1896, leaving an estate valued at $100,000, which in 1890s money is a lot. I think it's, you know, a million or two at least today, but compared to what his assets probably would have totaled, say, in 1880, it was not very good. Now, many sources, including some serious academic ones, to this day say that Hamilton Diston died of suicide by gunshot, in particular that he shot himself in the head while he was in the bathtub, and he did this because he was losing money and the uh, depression was hitting him very hard, etc., and I'm not sure if this is true or not. Michael Grunwald seems to think it is not, and most of the obituaries that were written about him, as well as the coroner's report, say that he died in bed of a heart-related problem. So, are those obituaries and the coroner's report falsified to try and cover up the fact that the guy committed suicide, or did the story of him committing suicide by shooting himself in the head while in the bathtub get invented somewhere along the way by somebody and then got repeated by enough different books simply citing each other that it became kind of part of the story of a lot of the books about this stuff. I don't know. But regardless, he was fairly young when he died. He was 51 years old. His wife later said he hadn't seemed depressed or anything before he died, but he had simply seemed um, fatigued or tired. But who knows? By the way, random interesting fact, Hamilton Diston was actually a very, very distant relative of, of all people, Walt Disney, who later would do much more to develop Central Florida than Diston ever did. And both could trace their ancestry ultimately back to an aristocratic French family with the last name Disney, spelled D-apostrophe-capital-I-S-N-Y. So in Diston's case, his family had anglicized it to Diston. And in Disney's case, they had simply gotten rid of the apostrophe and just turned it into simply Disney. But anyway, it's just interesting. So Diston had, in the course of 
you know, 15 years, drained some of the Kissimmee Valley area in central Florida, which were the kind of ultimate headwaters of the natural Everglades. But he failed to significantly alter the water levels of Lake Okeechobee or to build any drainage infrastructure that really hooked up to the heart of the Everglades proper. And as a result of that, the bulk of the Everglades still remained mostly what they had been for 5,000 years. In other words, even someone as wealthy as Diston ended up lacking the funds and the logistical capabilities for a project as overwhelming as draining the Everglades. Meanwhile, while Diston was cutting his deals and only accomplishing a small amount of the drainage he had promised and intended to do, a man more famous to history named Henry Flagler was basically creating South Florida. Henry Flagler was a business partner of none other than John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil, and Flagler has often been described as Rockefeller's right-hand man in that operation. Beginning in the 1880s, Henry Flagler got out of the oil business and began instead working on building a railroad, which would become known as the Florida East Coast Railway, down Florida's Atlantic coast, and building luxury resort hotels along the way. He began all this in the United States' oldest continuously occupied European-founded city, which is, of course, St. Augustine, where I'm sitting right now as I record this. This city was founded by the Spaniards in 1565 and has been my hometown off and on for 14 of the past 17 years. In St. Augustine, which was still a pretty darn small town in the 1880s, Flagler built the very, very fancy Ponce de Leon Hotel, which is now the campus of Flagler College, where, by the way, I earned my bachelor's degree in history back in 2003. Now, when Flagler got into the game of building railroads and hotels and in the process building towns running down Florida's east coast, he was inspired in part by another rich man from up north, also named Henry. And that was Henry Plant, who had started doing the same thing a little bit earlier than Flagler, uh, building railroads, resorts and towns running down Florida's Gulf Coast. If I'm not mistaken, I think Henry Flagler had even invested a little bit early on in Henry Plant's operations. Henry Flagler essentially retired from Standard Oil and, you know, one of the richest men in America at the time, really just got into building stuff in Florida. For the rest of his life, that was kind of his obsession, and in some cases, he wasn't even really making a profit off of it. Michael Grunwald writes, quote, Flagler considered his Florida projects part hobby, part philanthropy, end quote. Flagler once said that he could make more money in New York in a month than he ever could in St. Augustine in an entire lifetime, but that basically what he was doing in Florida just brought him more gratification and happiness than continuing to work in the oil business or anything else like that up north. Again, for a lot of the 1880s and 90s, Flagler wasn't really profiting on net from all of his Florida operations, but he was pursuing a long-term goal, a long-term vision. As he built his railroad down Florida's Atlantic coast. In addition to fancy hotels, he also built things like churches, hospitals, and schools in the towns where he built those hotels. After building the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine, he continued extending his railroad southward. In the mid-1890s, he founded the town of Palm Beach and built two more luxury hotels there. He also built himself a mansion in Palm Beach as well. 
and initially he considered that Palm Beach would be the end of the line, but a couple of hard freezes then made their way all the way down to Palm Beach and ruined most of Florida's citrus crop in 1895 and 1896. This made him reconsider whether or not Palm Beach should be the ultimate end of the line for his railroad. 65 miles south of Palm Beach, the then absolutely tiny outpost of Miami was just far enough south, further than Palm Beach, to avoid really catching the freeze. And in particular, two Miami residents, Julia Tuttle and William Brickle, were really determined to try to get Flagler to extend his railroad a bit further south to their town. And they successfully convinced Flagler to do so. Miami was incorporated as a town in 1896, with a total of 500 voters at the time. Local residents at the time offered to name the town Flagler, as Henry Flagler had just begun extending his railroad down to Miami, but Henry declined, and he suggested that it be called Miami, which was an anglicized version of an old native word for Lake Okeechobee, and it also used to refer to the original indigenous people who lived around the lake. Prior to this, Miami actually was generally referred to as Fort Dallas. Now, there's still tons of stuff named after Henry Flagler all the way down Florida's Atlantic coast, even though the city of Miami ended up not being named after him. So there's Flagler County, which is just south of where I live. There's Flagler Beach, which is in that county. And there's way too many other random things, streets, hospitals, and so on, named after Flagler to keep count of. In 1897, Henry Flagler opened the Royal Palm Hotel in Miami, which included South Florida's first golf course. Flagler began dredging for a deepwater port in Biscayne Bay at Miami and used his political connections to get some federal funds to help with that. And in five years, Miami's population grew by a factor of 10. Other communities began sprouting up along the South Florida coastal ridge, that little bit of slightly higher ground in between the Everglades and the Atlantic Ocean. So Fort Lauderdale went from a tiny outpost to being an incorporated town in 1911. And the towns of Boynton Beach, Delray Beach, Deerfield Beach, Pompano Beach, seeing a theme here, Dania, Hollandale, Perrine, and Homestead were all founded within the span of a decade or two of Flagler beginning to build Miami. James Ingram, who was Flagler's chief engineer and his most important guy in the Florida project, believed in the idea of draining the Everglades and really tried to get Flagler on board to sponsor more of that. But Flagler ultimately declined to really take that on in a big way. Instead, he continued building his railroad southward, and that project really became his focus during the last years of his life. Ingram, though wanted to continue to work on trying to drain parts of South Florida. And so he partnered with a guy named Rufus Rose, who'd previously worked for Hamilton Diston. And the two of them formed the Florida East Coast Drainage and Sugar Company, which is kind of revealing, right? Now, they planned a drainage project that would benefit a lot of Flagler South Florida communities. Basically, they wanted to drain hundreds of thousands of acres of wetlands that were kind of at the eastern edge of the Everglades, just west of the coastal ridge. And they thought then one of the things you could do with that is make sugar plantations there. Flagler himself seems to have had some kind of mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, if it did benefit him and his communities, he seems to have been supportive, but maybe a little skeptical about the feasibility and profitability of doing such a thing. But in 1901, Florida got a new governor and they replaced a business-friendly, fiscally conservative governor with a progressive 
Democrat governor named William Sherman Jennings. And Jennings changed the state's policies. He ended the giveaways of Florida land to businessmen and corporations, railroad companies, etc., and wanted them to only be able to get land from the state by just purchasing it outright for cash if they wanted it. In addition, he started to cause problems for companies and individuals that believed they had previous claims to land based on prior deals with the Internal Improvement Fund, and Jennings was trying to kind of nullify those deals. So he had this more populist idea of stop giving away the land so easily to corporate interests and so on. Now, because of this political change, Flagler decided ultimately not to invest in Ingram and Rose's plan for draining parts of South Florida, because he decided even if he did succeed in funding them to carry out a big drainage operation, he'd be unlikely to be able to get much of the land from having done so. So as a result, all Flagler really did was a little bit of small-scale local canal building on kind of the outermost edges of the glades, and he declined to invest the massive funds into Ingram and Rose's operation that were required for them to really do the big draining that they planned to do. In fact, he actually tried to dissuade Ingram from even trying to do anything about the Everglades, and he later wrote, quote, So far as I am personally concerned, I haven't the money or the inclination to take up as big a matter as the drainage of the Everglades, end quote. In 1905, Flagler decided he wanted to build his railroad all the way from Miami down through the Florida Keys to Key West, a distance um, from the end of mainland Florida to Key West is over 120 miles. And that became his kind of final project, his final obsession, you would even say, during the latter part of his life, and he got it done. His railroad reached Key West in 1912, and he died the next year at the age of 83. Now, he did that, building what became known as the Overseas Railroad all the way to Key West, which itself was a hell of a big and expensive building and engineering project for sure, no question. But despite doing that, he believed that Draining the Everglades was ultimately too big and expensive of a project to do profitably and too much of a hassle to be worth it. Now that, to me, is pretty important. Understand, Flagler at the time was one of the richest men in America, and he was obviously willing to, in some cases, temporarily lose money on a project in pursuit of a long-term goal. And yet even he, even he, concluded that draining the Everglades was too big of a project to do, especially to do with any hope of profit with purely private funds. So ultimately, it would take government to do that. Flagler didn't drain the Everglades, but his building of railroads, hotels, and towns along the coastal ridge of South Florida gave the area its first population and land boom, which increased the number of people and interests who might be interested in the idea of draining the Everglades and who could bring pressure to bear on people who might actually be able to succeed in doing what Diston had failed to do and what Flagler had declined to do. Those people who might succeed, of course, being government people. One man would do more to change the paradigm of draining the Everglades than almost anyone else, even though relatively little physically got accomplished on the project during his lifetime. He would change the paradigm of trying to outsource the drainage of the Everglades to private capital with the promise 
that such capitalists would own some of the land that they drained, and shift it from that idea to the idea of having the state government directly involved in carrying out the drainage, in doing the drainage itself. And that man was Florida's local homegrown version of Teddy Roosevelt, a guy who even kind of looked a lot like Teddy Roosevelt, a guy who was a hardcore progressive with a big mustache like Teddy Roosevelt, a guy who had a massive amount of hyperactivity disorder like Teddy Roosevelt, and who also had a strong dose of self-righteousness like Teddy Roosevelt. And I'm talking about Governor Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, who was kind of like a Florida Democrat version of T.R. Broward once said of himself, quote, It might be said of me and perhaps of every other man who has a desire to accomplish something for the good of mankind, that he belongs to that class who rush in where angels fear to tread, end quote. And I think one can imagine those exact words coming out of Teddy Roosevelt's mouth very, very easily. Now, aside from looking somewhat similar and both being progressives and sharing even some of the personality quirks, both T.R. and Broward were involved in law enforcement before becoming governors of their respective home states, and both were considered conservationists in their time, but were often very supportive of things like draining wetlands. Both T.R. and Napoleon Bonaparte Broward came from wealthy families, but T.R. had the good luck to come from a wealthy northern family, which, as a result, didn't have its fortunes destroyed by the Civil War, especially since Teddy Roosevelt's father avoided military service, as so many other wealthy people did. Broward had the bad luck to be born shortly before the Civil War to a wealthy Southern family, and as a result of that would have a childhood characterized by way more tragedy and trauma and poverty than anything Teddy Roosevelt experienced, at least as a very young man. I know Teddy Roosevelt had some personal tragedies and things later on, but I'm talking about like childhood, you know, adolescence. And just one more thing I'll say about the similarities between these two men, at least as far as my own feelings about them. In both cases, my own personal take on these men is that had the two of them never really gotten into politics, in other words, if you could just delete the part of their biographies where they're in politics and fill that in with just working on other careers, perhaps TR as a naturalist and Broward as a steamboat captain, I'd think they'd both be pretty cool guys with some admirable qualities in some ways and very interesting life stories. But both of them had a real bad hankering for the ring of power and to use it to do good. And as a result, both of them, in my opinion, are ultimately more villains than heroes. Broward would end up only serving one term as Florida's governor, which is all the state constitution allowed at the time. And he died not long after, and yet the early 20th century is considered the Broward era in Florida's political history. So big was his impact. I'd previously thought about maybe someday doing a DHP villains feature on this guy because he's just such a despicable example of a lot of what I hate so much about early 20th century American progressives. And he's not well known because he died before he could rise higher in American politics than governor of Florida. And remember, at the time, Florida was one of the most inconsequential states in America to American politics because of its population and thus its back then very low amount of electoral pull. So I toyed with the idea previously of doing a 
DHP villains feature on this guy, but I think what I'll do is just do my best to educate you on some of his story here, as his biggest legacy was really getting the war on the Everglades truly going in the early 20th century, and bringing in government to do the job in a much more direct way than ever before. Napoleon Bonaparte Broward was born in 1857 on a plantation near Jacksonville. His parents were members of Florida's small, wealthy elite group of planters, but during the Civil War, his father served in the Confederate Army, and young Napoleon, his brother, and his mother had to flee their plantation as refugees when a Union army came through the area. When they returned home after the war had ended, they lost everything. Of course, their slaves had been freed and left, not surprisingly, right? But they had also had their home looted, burned, etc. And so very quickly went from wealthy aristocrats to virtually homeless refugees. Though just a young boy, Napoleon had to immediately begin working very hard simply to literally survive. And he spent his childhood doing harsh agricultural labor instead of going to school. To make his Childhood years even worse, when he was only 12, his mother committed suicide, and the following year his dad died of pneumonia. So, Napoleon and his little brother were both orphans. Napoleon continued trying to work the family farm and did other odd jobs just to get by, and when he was 18, he got a job as a crew member on a steamboat in the St. John's River. And he quickly felt that he really found his career. And after working on a few different ships, he managed to become a steamboat captain in the 1880s, which is when Florida's first tourism boom was happening. Now, this first tourism boom of wealthy northern tourists coming down to Florida was largely centered around Florida's rivers, and especially the really pristine wild ones which most of Florida's rivers were at the time. So you'd come down as a wealthy northern tourist and you would ride a steamboat up and down some of Florida's scenic waterways, which were, again, very wild and scenic and pristine at the time, and in particular enjoying the springs and the rivers that were crystal clear, spring-fed ones, etc. So before people really started to value the beach as a destination, and long before Disney World was built, that was what a lot of Florida's tourism was about, the rivers, the springs, the natural beauty, etc. By the time he was 30, Broward was quite successful, and he had branched out his business from being a steamboat captain, which he continued to do, but also got involved in salvaging, shipbuilding, dredging, and investing in a variety of things like a lumberyard and phosphate mines. And somewhere along the way, he managed to get a little bit of formal schooling, and of course, along the way, as was common in America at the time, did a fair amount of self-teaching, too. So obviously a sharp guy, a hardworking guy. In 1888, Broward, who was at that time quite popular in his area and had a lot of influence and friends in Northeast Florida, got himself appointed as sheriff of Jacksonville, which at the time, I believe, the governor appointed that position. And it quickly became clear that he was a progressive do-gooder type in that role. He cracked down on gambling operations in Jacksonville and other vices. And local do-gooder reformers loved this. And the tons of people who wanted to gamble and who wanted to offer gambling obviously did not. Broward was clearly aligning himself with a faction that at the time was known as the straight-outs within Florida's Democratic Party. In Florida, as in most of the rest of the South after Reconstruction ended in the 1870s, 
the state had quickly reverted to being a quote-unquote solid South Democratic Party stronghold, a place where the Republican Party was so ineffective as to be just kind of like a token second party for close to a century. And as a result of this in Florida, again, as in most other areas of the American South, from the 1880s through the 1960s, the political contests that really mattered for any major state or national office from Florida What really mattered was the internal battles within the Democratic Party. So, for example, it was the Democratic primary for governor that really was what chose the next governor of Florida, since basically whoever the party nominated was 99.9% repeating chance they were going to completely steamroll whoever the Republicans ran in the general election. Now, the faction of the Democratic Party, the straightouts, who also sometimes were called the wool hats, were a faction of Florida's Democratic Party that were considered reformers. They wanted bigger and more active government, and they basically were a mixture of populist ideas and what would shortly become known as progressive ideas. Opposing them were a faction called the Antis, sometimes also called the Silk Hats, who were more kind of pro-business and small government, low-tax, fiscally conservative people within Florida's Democratic Party. Henry Flagler, who was himself a Republican, worked with this faction of the Democrats in Florida's politics, because, of course, there wasn't really a viable Republican Party for him to ally with. And so pragmatically, he said, all right, I can get along with these Democrats for the things that I want to do in Florida. By the way, a similar internal battle was happening within the National Democratic Party during the same period. And this is the battle that would result ultimately in a populist triumph with the nomination of William Jennings Bryan for president in 1896 and also with the progressive Woodrow Wilson's nomination and, and victory in the general election in 1912. The most controversial issue of Broward's tenure as Jacksonville Sheriff came in 1894. In January of 1894, Jacksonville was going to host a world heavyweight title fight. Gentleman Jim Corbett would be defending his title against a challenger named Charles Mitchell. Now, in light of what ends up happening, I did my best to get a straight answer on was professional boxing illegal entirely in Florida at the time, and I didn't come up with a straight answer anywhere. It's kind of hazy. The sources that talk about what's going to happen aren't citing a specific law or straight out saying, hey, it was illegal for sure. And yet at the same time, it was illegal in many other states at the time I know, and based on what ends up happening, I'm thinking that it's got to be that it was technically illegal in Florida. But regardless of whether it was strictly legal or not, or whether it was perhaps in some kind of gray zone maybe at the time, it was a big deal for Jacksonville to host a world heavyweight title fight. And at the time, a lot of people in the area were very excited about it, but most state and local leaders were very much opposed to the whole thing. Aside from it possibly being illegal, which again, I tried to get a straight answer to and couldn't get, A lot of these progressive do-gooder types also thought that boxing and everything that went along with it was immoral and needed to be snuffed out, like gambling and other vices. The governor of Florida, which at the time of the fight was a man named Henry Mitchell, along with the mayor of Jacksonville and Jacksonville sheriff, of course, Broward, were all opposed to having the fight take place at all, and they were 
Whether out of genuine belief in these ideas or simply pandering to a constituency, they were playing to the kind of church-going, moralistic, do-gooder, straight-out constituency in Florida, which was a constituency that, like I said, opposed prize fighting and also the gambling that always inevitably went along with it. And in contrast, the more laissez-faire antis, the more pro-business Democrats, they wanted the fight to go ahead because it'd be good for business. A judge actually ruled that Sheriff Broward was not allowed to enter the site where the fight was to take place, and various progressive groups tried to pressure Florida's two big railroad barons, namely Henry Plant on the Gulf Coast and Henry Flagler on the East Coast, not to transport anyone who was going to the fight or who would be potentially participating in it or looking to profit from it or anything. But the two Henrys ultimately sided with the free market and continued to offer the railroad services to anyone who could buy a ticket. When Florida's governor dispatched a small militia force to Jacksonville and even threatened to institute martial law, that was a bit too much for much of the population of the town. And much of Jacksonville's business community threatened to simply not comply with any order of martial law. And what ended up happening was kind of a joke. The little militia force just kind of marched around making a little bit of a show so that the governor could claim that he was trying to uphold law and order and virtue in the city. And, you know, he was trying to prevent the potential pandemonium of having a professional fight take place in Jacksonville. But as the militia group marched around town, they were taunted by ordinary citizens, and some of them even threw rocks and sandbags at them. And ultimately, the militia decided, you know, not to shoot the crowd or anything like that in this particular instance. So despite all the posturing and the marching around of this small militia group, the fight went on as scheduled, with almost 2,000 spectators attending in person. The fight itself wasn't that big of a deal. Corbin won pretty handily by knockout in round three and defended his title. What's interesting is after the fight was over, Sheriff Broward had both boxers arrested and charged with assault. Now, neither was convicted. Corbett actually went to trial and was acquitted by jury, and Mitchell, the loser, was released without trial after the case against him got dropped. But kind of shows you the, the do-gooder progressivism of a guy like Napoleon Bonaparte Broward that he would arrest two professional boxers for assault after a bout. In 1897, though, Governor Mitchell, who'd also opposed the bout, was out of office and was replaced by William Bloxham, the same guy who'd previously been governor in the 1880s and done the deal with Hamilton Diston. And Bloxham, who was very much aligned with the Antis in the Democratic Party, didn't like Broward and removed him from his job as Jacksonville sheriff. Now, during that same era, when... Broward was removed from being sheriff, things were heating up in Cuba. There was the insurgency going on of Cuban rebels against the Spanish government, the problems that would later become the U.S. government's justification for going to war against Spain in 1898. Not the real reasons, mind you, but the justifications. Namely, there's a Cuban insurgency, and the Spanish are attempting to stop it with harsh counterinsurgency measures, and by golly, Team America just has to come in and save the day. Well, this was starting to take place and heat up around 1895-1896, and in the mid-1890s, Grover Cleveland was still president of the United States, and he was generally an anti-interventionist foreign policy sort of a guy. And he really did not want Team America to get involved in a war with Spain over Cuba. 
and he also told Americans not to get involved in the conflict as private actors either. And there were U.S. neutrality laws that technically made it illegal for an American citizen to, for example, run guns down to the Cuban rebels. For their part, the Spanish, who were still at the time the legally legitimate considered, you know, government of Cuba, they also banned these sorts of things and offered a $25,000 reward for the capture of any filibuster, as they were called, who might be attempting to get into Cuba to help the insurrectos somehow by bringing them guns or whatever. Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, who was now returned to private life, no longer sheriff, and was back running all of his maritime-related business interests, he decided to ignore both the U.S. and Spanish governments and to get personally involved in the conflict. In 1895, he built a new ship called the Three Friends, which is kind of funny. I think of, you know, he's going to be running stuff down to Cuba with it. Maybe he should have called it the Three Amigos, and then we'd all have something really to laugh at. During this time, there was a small but vocal Cuban um, expatriate community in Jacksonville, and some of them approached Broward and basically recruited him to use his new boat to run guns and explosives and even insurrectos down to Cuba to help the guerrilla forces that were being led by Jose Marti. Now, in a lot of ways, I often tend to be sympathetic to things like smuggling, especially if it involves helping out a group that's fighting against a government that they don't want. But what bugs me about this whole thing is Broward and his degree of just complete self-righteous, unapologetic hypocrisy. Here's a guy who just one year ago arrested two professional boxers for boxing. In other words, he was totally happy when he was sheriff to be Mr. Dudley Do-Right, the upstanding do-gooder progressive, upholding the ever-so-sacred law. But now, when it's profitable for him, and it aligns with what he thinks ought to be done, he's happy to blatantly violate a law that one could make a very strong case is a bit more important than a law against boxing. So again, I'm not saying someone's evil for being a smuggler. I'm saying it bugs me that someone who's willing to be a sheriff and arrest two boxers for boxing then thinks he's justified in running guns, violating the laws of two countries in the process. I just really don't have much sympathy for hypocrisy and double standards. So from January 1896 up through the U.S. declaration of war on Spain in 1898, Broward and his partners and crew made a bunch of runs into Cuba, I'm not even sure how many, and never got caught by Spanish forces, although they did have apparently more than one close call. Both the Spanish and American governments at the time knew who Broward was and what he was up to, but somehow, apparently he was a very good steamboat captain. He always managed to dodge them while he was in the act of gun running. Again, if you set aside all the things he did as a politician, he kind of in a lot of ways would be a cool dude. Well, at one point, the Cleveland administration seized his boat and accused him of violating American neutrality laws. And the case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately ruled that the Cleveland administration was justified in seizing Broward's ship. But by the time that decision came down, Cleveland was no longer president. And William McKinley, who was the much more pliant guy who would soon take America to war against Spain, McKinley's administration did not push the actions any further, and so the charges against Broward just kind of dissipated. 
After that, this gun running actually made Broward more popular amongst many constituencies than before, which, again, is kind of cool if it hadn't been for the blatant hypocrisy of his other actions as sheriff. But he served, I believe, one term in the Florida State House, then took a couple years off from politics before deciding to run for governor of Florida in 1904. Stepping down as governor was a guy I briefly mentioned before, William Jennings, who was also a straight-out progressive populist-type Democrat like Broward. Jennings couldn't run for a second term as per Florida's constitution at the time, so he threw his support behind Broward. And even so, Broward was an underdog in a lot of ways. He had much of Florida's big business interests, including Henry Flagler and most of the major newspapers in the state, against him. Broward decided not to even bother campaigning much in the state's larger cities and towns, but instead to focus on the small towns and the rural areas. And back then, a strategy like that could still sometimes win you the state of Florida, though, of course, in modern times, if that was your strategy, you would lose every time. Broward decided in his campaign to make the question of state lands, the internal improvement fund, and especially the draining of the Everglades, the centerpiece of his campaign, and to do so in a very populist way designed to appeal to not only the common man, but also those straight-out progressive-type Democrats. Michael Grunwald writes, quote, Napoleon Broward declared war on the swamp during his 1904 campaign for governor. He was considered a staunch conservationist in his day. He supported strict laws to protect fish, game birds, and oysters, and his top priority was the reclamation of a swamp for agriculture and development. Broward never stopped to think what draining the Everglades might do to the fish, game birds, and oysters that live there, but hardly anyone did. Broward was also a progressive, an anti-railroad, anti-corporation, anti-flagler populist. His crusade for Everglades drainage was not just a fight for man against nature. It was a fight for ordinary Floridians against the seductive and enslaving power of corporate interests who monopolize state lands without improving them. Broward wanted to turn the Everglades into a place where ordinary people could improve their lot in life through hard work, end quote. So he had this almost Jeffersonian idea that you would drain the Everglades, and really what you would do with it is make it available for poor people who wanted to work hard to have their own little farms. In other words, kind of a Jeffersonian idea. Ironically, the most successful agriculture that would come out of draining the Everglades would be large-scale sugarcane agriculture, heavily subsidized by the government and almost the complete opposite of like the image of the yeoman family farmer, the hardy, self-sufficient small farmer, etc., Broward's main opponent in the Democratic primary for governor, which, again, was what really decided who'd be Florida's governor at the time, was a congressman named Robert Davis, who was very much supported by the Silk Hat Antis, by Henry Flagler, and so on. Broward portrayed Davis as a man who would undo Jennings's achievements in stopping the state from using lands as a source of corporate welfare to railroad companies and so on. Instead, Broward portrayed his desire to drain the Everglades as an extension of Jennings's policies regarding state lands. Broward's proposal was to drain the Everglades, which he said could be done for only a dollar per acre. Then the state would sell that drained land for between five and twenty dollars an acre and would use the profit to fund the state government, including, among other things, Broward wanted a lot more funding for public schools. Believe it or not, Broward's main campaign slogan for governor in 1904 was, Water will run downhill. 
Broward apparently thought it would be that simple, that since the Everglades and the lakes and rivers that fed it were a little bit above sea level, all you really had to do was just add a little bit more to the outlets running to the sea, and it would just drain itself. In campaign speeches, he said things like, quote, It would be a sad commentary on the intelligence and energy of the people of Florida to confess that so simple an engineering feat as the drainage of a body 21 feet above the level of the sea was beyond their power, end quote. He really seems to have thought it would be this, you know, cheap, simple, and so on to do this. Broward's relentless campaigning with this populist message resonated with enough small-town and rural white male Floridians, which were the only people voting in Florida at the time, of course, that he managed to win the Democratic primary by a margin of just over 700 votes, which, of course, made him the next governor of Florida, because he'd win the general against the Republican candidate without even trying. In that job of being governor of Florida for four years, he would push for a bunch of kind of standard early 20th century progressive stuff, including prison reform, higher pay for teachers, more money for schools, and he even advocated a compulsory state-run life insurance program for Floridians. This last proposal, by the way, went down in flames in the legislature. But the focus of his four years as governor was draining the Everglades, and it's become what he's the most known for ever since. In his inaugural address, he said, the Everglades of Florida should be saved. But then he went on in the same speech to clarify what he meant by that when he said, they should be drained and made fit for cultivation. One has to understand that there was almost no such thing as the modern concept of preserving pieces of nature for their own sake during this era, other than a handful of people who were considered deranged weirdos at the time, who were already thinking along these terms, almost nobody else did. Instead, in the late 19th and early 20th century, what you had was conservationism, in particular dominated by a concept known as wise use. Now, amongst progressives who were at all concerned with things having to do with the environment and natural resources, and by no means were all progressives even concerned with those at the time, but amongst those who were, this type of conservation with its emphasis on wise use was very much the reigning orthodoxy among those sorts of people. And this would include President Teddy Roosevelt, who famously preserved large tracts of American wilderness, but also at the same time was a major proponent of things like building dams and straightening rivers. He protected over 200 million acres of public land, but he also was extremely proud of the Reclamation Act, which was a law passed during his presidency, which really began the era of massive dam projects and irrigation projects in the American West, which are things that modern-day environmentalists and ecologists see as horribly damaging. Teddy Roosevelt once said, Conservation means development as much as it does protection. This mindset was also the reigning paradigm for T.R.'s friend and his hand-picked guy to run the Forest Service, a man named Gifford Pinchot. Of course, this was also the paradigm for Napoleon Bonaparte Broward and the progressives who supported him in Florida in his plan to drain the Everglades. Historian Dave Nelson writes this of conservation in the early 20th century, quote, in Florida, as in much of the nation, many people by the early 1900s began to formulate and follow the ideals of conservation. Unlike preservation, which involved removing presumably pristine natural areas from human development, 
conservation embraced the concept of wise use, to use the former U.S. forester Gifford Pinchot's much-used phrase. For conservationists, nature was valuable only when humans were able to use it. And anything that was considered unusable or unproductive, such as wetlands and dry prairies, was seen as wasteful. The greatest good for the greatest number of people was the driving motto of Florida progressives. Nature required action, not passivity. Ecosystems, wildlife, and natural resources represented potential, one that humans needed to realize. But conservationists also believe that natural resources, such as water, woods, minerals, and soil, were vulnerable to careless choices, including overproduction, uncontrolled fires, and poor planning. Therefore, wise planning and use was needed to ensure resource availability for future generations. End quote. Now, granted, I would agree that this is a preferable approach in many ways, to things like just strip mining everything and chopping down every tree and slaughtering all the wildlife that might be useful to humans as fast as humanly possible. I suppose it's an improvement to take the step to wise use. But keep in mind, on the other hand, from the point of view of understanding that the preservation of certain ecosystems that appear, quote unquote, useless to humans, things like wetlands or deserts, that there's a purpose these things serve and they shouldn't just be completely wrecked. When you really understand that and understand in the modern sense kind of how ecosystems work, then wise use conservationism still leaves a lot to be desired. The mindset that could cause someone to look at the Everglades and conclude, well, the sooner we can drain this damn thing, the better it'll be for conservation, that is problematic. And interestingly, these same progressive conservationists had been successful in getting a law passed in Florida to ban the hunting of so-called plume birds in the Everglades, these wading aquatic birds who had very attractive feathers. They were being drastically overhunted and virtually exterminated in order to feed the demand primarily of wealthy northern women for fancy feathers to put on their hats. These birds were being wiped out by market hunting in South Florida, a clear case of kind of the tragedy of the commons in action. Now, the irony of this story is that the same progressive conservationist people who worked to ban hunting plume birds in the Everglades were also huge movers and shakers in the movement to try to drain the Everglades. In other words, they wanted laws to protect the pretty birds, but at the same time, they also advocated programs that would drain and destroy the habitat in which those pretty birds lived. And they didn't seem to make the connection. They seemed pretty oblivious to it. Michael Grunwald sums up this contradiction as follows, quote, Turn of the century conservationists stopped the annihilation of the birds of the Everglades, but they had no problem whatsoever with the drainage of the Everglades. In fact, Florida's conservationists led the fight to drain the swamp. They saw reclamation as the essence of conservation, an eminently wise use of natural resources. Conservation meant the opposite of waste, and the Everglades, even if it provided a home to pretty birds, was clearly a wasteland, end quote. A man named John Gifford, who was the first American to earn a doctorate degree in forestry and was a co-founder of Conservation Magazine, was South Florida's leading conservationist in the early 20th century, and he wrote, quote, in Southern California, the hand of man has produced a highly developed and attractive region with no resources except vim and climate. In Southern Florida, we have the resources, but the vim has been lacking. 
We have been reposing since the Seminole War, but it is this grappling with nature which develops the latent forces within the man. The coming age is to be an age of conquest, the conquest of nature, the reclamation of swamplands, and the irrigation of deserts. End quote. This is your leading early 20th century conservationist. And notice how much of what was said in the audio of Waters of Destiny at the start of this episode sounds like it's coming right out of this guy's mouth. Gifford himself contributed to the project of drying up South Florida by importing the invasive Australian melaleuca tree, which is notorious for drinking up huge amounts of water into South Florida. And that tree has been a scourge of South Florida's environment ever since. Like I said, Governor Broward made draining the Everglades the centerpiece of his campaign and also made it a priority once he was in office. And he was personally very involved, he even micromanaged some aspects of it. A lot of it most likely to the detriment of actually making progress on the drainage project. In other words, he might have been his own worst enemy because he really didn't have a background in engineering or anything like that. His initial plan was to build a canal running from Lake Okeechobee eastward to the St. Lucie River in order to start lowering the level of the lake, which was a plan pretty similar to what Hamilton Diston's original plan was. He didn't really commission any proper studies or surveys or anything beforehand. He really thought it's just as simple as water will run downhill if you just make sure there's an easy path for it to go. Now, we're often led to think that the story in regards to environmental degradation is always one of private business interests trying to wreck the environment while the state nobly and selflessly tries to protect it. Now, in some cases, including this particular one, the story is the opposite. Well, maybe not entirely the opposite, but partially so. It was the progressive-led state that was struggling to try to drain the Everglades. And it was actually some of the big business interests who were opposing it. Now, they were doing it for their own reasons. They weren't doing it because they were nature lovers. But some big business interests were objecting to draining the Everglades on kind of fiscal conservatism type grounds. They were portraying this project as a massive boondoggle that would waste a lot of taxpayer money. And they were objecting to the new taxes, mainly property taxes, that Broward was trying to institute to try to pay for it all. But even though we may not agree with their motives being the most important ones, the fact of the matter was it was big business interests in a lot of cases who at this moment in time were, again, for their own reasons, but still pushing back against draining the Everglades. And a similar thing will pop up in the 1930s in a different story altogether when there was work on building a canal across Florida, which ended up getting stopped, which would have been a complete environmental disaster in a lot of ways, including to um, Florida's drinking water. But same deal, that got halted in part because of fiscal conservatives who may not have been nature lovers, but they were like, hey, this is really freaking expensive and maybe it's a waste of taxpayer money. Now, when the press, much of which was owned or influenced by Henry Flagler, began attacking Broward and his plans, Broward responded by demonizing Flagler and people like him and called them land pirates and insidious enemies and other nasty things. Again, very Teddy Roosevelt-like. He takes things very personally and is quite happy to viciously verbally attack anyone who stands in his way. Interestingly, Michael Grunwald, who's generally, I think, at least somewhat sympathetic to the anti-corporate message of Broward, even if he doesn't share his ideas about the Everglades, Grunwald admits that 
Broward and his supporters, their attacks on Flagler were a bit over the top and disconnected from reality in a lot of cases. Grunwald writes, quote, Flagler was a convenient boogeyman, but he had yet to receive a single acre of land from the state, even though he had built 250 miles of track to state specifications. He had poured capital into South Florida when no one else had dared, financing civic improvements, creating jobs, even spending his own money on drainage projects, end quote. So one of the things I like about Grunwald's book, besides the fact that it's very, very well written, is that he tends to be pretty fair, honestly in a lot of ways. And so he'll even give Henry Flagler, a robber baron who's often demonized in many places, he'll even give him his due and point out that, you know, some of the demonization of him at the time was a bit over the top and disconnected from reality. Now, like I said, Broward was very personally involved and even micromanaged things a bit. He chose personally the types of dredges he wanted, which may not have even been the best choice, but he even personally traveled to Chicago to purchase them. But where the rubber hit the road or where the metal hit the swamp or whatever you want to call it, Broward soon found that his plan to build a canal running eastward out of Lake Okeechobee was simply not feasible for the moment. And so he decided to have the two dredges that the state had purchased, which were named ironically after what they were attempting to destroy. The dredges were named the Everglades and the Okeechobee. He had his dredges start dredging some smaller, localized canals in southeast Florida, basically in the area that today is called Broward County. In the short term, Broward's dredging did, quote-unquote, reclaim some modest acreage in south Florida, and some of that acreage was put to work for agriculture, as he intended, enough so that Broward at least had something he could point to and say, see, look what I'm doing. In fact, during his governorship, none other than President Teddy Roosevelt himself visited South Florida with Broward, and based on what he saw, which was, of course, what Broward wanted him to see, um, TR was very impressed and supportive of the project, although at the time no massive federal funds were forthcoming. But despite the fact that progress on it was nowhere near what he thought it would be as quickly as he thought or as cheaply as he thought, the Everglades Project did make Broward a rising star in state and national politics by the end of his term as governor. Now, in tangible terms, not that much had physically been done during his term. Despite some localized work done in South Florida, the fact of the matter was that partway through his term, his two dredges had only dug about five miles of canals and had drained less than 10,000 total acres. Things were simply tougher and more costly than he had ever anticipated or promised. The federal government's drainage bureau, which was part of the Department of Agriculture, was somewhat interested in helping the Everglades drainage project along, and its head, a man named Charles Elliott, supported the idea, but when he looked into it, and apparently he was a kind of non-partisan, very just kind of straightforward, competent engineer, he looked into it and his conclusion was it would be tougher and more expensive than Broward had projected, but he still supported doing it. So the Drainage Bureau decided to do an extensive formal study of the Everglades Drainage Project. But the man who was appointed to actually do this wasn't Charles Elliott or any other competent, straightforward, honest engineer. Instead, it was a man named James Wright. And Michael Grunwald describes Wright as follows. He was, quote, a former high school math teacher with no formal engineering training and none of Elliott's ethical qualms. 
Wright's main talent was speech-making. When he did oversee surveys, he routinely accepted gratuities from landowners and drainage companies. Wright was a smooth political operator in a world of engineering nerds, and he was happy to do Governor Broward's bidding in the Everglades. End quote. Wright quickly slapped together a report in which he said that Broward's drainage plans were basically fine and that his projected cost of it only taking a dollar per acre to drain the Everglades was accurate. David McCauley writes, quote, The Wright report on the feasibility of Everglades drainage provides the best historical example of the volatile mix that science and politics can create. Wright allowed his professional judgment to be swayed by the politics of land development that dominated the Florida political scene during the early years of the 20th century. Wright's draft of the Everglades report contained egregious errors, all of which added to the optimism of drainage boosters, end quote. He made major errors, whether deliberate or not, in terms of calculating the relationship between rainfall, evaporation, and runoff, kind of basic hydroengineering stuff. And another more competent and honest engineer looked at it and pointed out that if Wright's figures about all these things were correct, then Lake Okeechobee probably would have dried up by itself without human intervention a while ago. But... When you mix science and politics, you get perverted outcomes, and Wright's report served the purposes of Broward and other drainage supporters, both in government and in the private sector, by giving the project the veneer of official federal government support, or at the very least endorsement that it was a viable plan. And as a result of this, major South Florida landowners even agreed to allow the institution of a property tax increase of five cents per acre for them to help pay for the project. Wright then left his job at the USDA Drainage Bureau and became Florida's chief engineer, which in the process doubled his salary. By the end of Broward's term as governor, the state had only dug 13 miles of canals, which was actually way less than even Hamilton Diston had done on his own dime in the 1880s. Looking at the bigger picture, even as late as 1920, over a decade after Broward left office, even as late as 1920, at least 80% of the wetlands that had existed in Florida when America took it over were still, in fact, actually wetlands. And as Michael Grunwald would put it, the Everglades were still the Everglades. But even so, the process of negative changes to the ecosystem had begun, and the Everglades would become less and less like itself over the course of the 20th century as a series of chain reactions continued and continued to degrade the balance, the delicate balance of the natural ecosystem. David McCauley writes of what developed, quote, after Broward committed the state of Florida to the task of draining the Everglades, the wetland system entered a new phase of its life. Before drainage, the marshlands had been emergent, that is, organic remains continued to create new soil. But after drainage became effective, this process reversed itself, and the Everglades began the dying process as its finite supply of soil, the legacy of 5,000 years of life, began to disappear. The newly dried land experienced dramatic subsidence and smoldering fires that could burn for years. Less dramatic but even more insidious was the toll taken by the aerobic bacteria that lived in the organic soils. 
Once the water was removed, these microbes had ready access to oxygen, and the bacteria literally began to consume the muck. It is widely agreed that, as a consequence of drainage, about 88% of these organic soils will have disappeared by the year 2000. End quote. Macaulay, by the way, was writing this in the late 1990s. As for Napoleon Bonaparte Broward... After leaving the governor's office, he ran for Senate and lost in 1908. Then both he and his fellow former Florida governor, William Jennings, were both hired and paid well by a wealthy investor named Richard Bowles's company, which was Florida Fruitlands, which was one of the major interests looking to benefit from Everglades drainage. At the same time, Broward even did some well-paid spokesman work for a rival firm, the Florida Everglades Land Sales Company. In fact, when Broward ran for Senate again in 1910, a muckraking investigative journalist revealed that both Broward and Jennings had received major payments in the form of cash and land from developer Richard Bowles while each of them was still in office as governor. And it's funny, like, just how so many alleged anti-big corporation progressives, whether a hundred years ago or today, like so many of these people, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward was quite willing to make a lot of money for himself from some very big business interests, as long as they were the ones who were allied with him and supported him politically. Now, despite these revelations of payoffs, and despite even worse allegations that I don't think were quite substantiated... Broward himself somehow managed to win the Democratic primary for Senate and thus in 1910 was elected as one of Florida's U.S. senators. However, he died before he actually took office due to a gallstone attack at just 53 years of age. Shortly after Broward's death, Richard Bowles and some of the other major speculators-slash-developers of South Florida land launched a very successful PR campaign in which they lured Northerners to come purchase land in South Florida on which to start little farms. However, a lot of the land they were selling was still literally underwater. One man from Iowa famously quipped, quote, I have bought land by the acre and I have bought land by the foot, but by God, I have never before bought land by the gallon, end quote. And as people began to realize what they were actually buying, it became a national scandal. And before long, word got out and people stopped falling for this scheme. And some of them even sued Bowles. Congressional investigations in 1912 into James Wright's report exposed all sorts of errors in it, whether deliberate or accidental, like true errors. I don't know, but they certainly found circumstantial evidence that seemed to point in the direction that these errors may have been caused by Wright being paid off by those who were in favor of Broward's drainage scheme and were looking to profit from it. As a result, Wright lost his job working for the state, but otherwise wasn't really punished, and in fact, he soon landed a job working for a private contractor that was involved with the drainage project. In 1913, the state of Florida commissioned another report on Everglades drainage, this time by a relatively competent engineer, and he concluded that it would take a lot more canal building than Wright and Broward had said, and it would, of course, end up costing a lot, lot more, but ultimately it was still doable. 
The replacement for James Wright in the role of Florida's chief engineer was a man named Fred Cotton Elliott, who was an alumnus of the Virginia Military Institute, where he had graduated 12th in his class, just one notch ahead of a man named George Marshall, who had graduated 13th. Fred Elliott would be Florida's chief engineer all the way up through the 1950s. In his views on things, he was basically an old-school conservationist in the Teddy Roosevelt style. He was a man who loved to spend time out in nature, hunting and fishing and so on, but who also believed that nature should, when necessary, be totally modified in order to be more useful to humans. In the 19-teens, there was a little bit of a boom in reclaimed former swampland just south of Lake Okeechobee. And despite some hardships in doing so, some Northerners did get farms seemingly up and running during the 19-teens. These were mostly in the land just south of the lake, in land that had previously been very, very scenic and unique area known as pond apple or custard apple swampland forest which looks, if you dig up any old pictures of it before it was destroyed, like something out of Lord of the Rings, maybe, but which was now being cleared for agriculture. And in this area, towns such as Moorhaven, Bell Glade, and Pahokee sprang up. At the same time, southeast Florida, the area that was becoming known as the Gold Coast, was starting to grow pretty dramatically in the 19-teens, and especially in the 1920s. The eastern edges of the Everglades were beginning to be dried out by the canals that had been built there, and as a result, the water table was dropping in coastal Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. Natural springs were drying up, and major fires were occurring in areas of drained wetlands. At the same time, plans were in the works to build what would become the Tamiami Trail, a road running from Miami to Tampa, pretty much right across the northern Everglades, a project which would itself cause a lot of ecological damage to the Everglades by getting in the way of a lot of the water flow. Still, at the time, most people unquestioningly supported the ideas of wise use conservationism, and thus supported reclamation, or draining the swamp. South Florida experienced the Roaring Twenties, more dramatically in terms of both boom and bust than most other places in America, save perhaps Wall Street and a few other major metro areas. Some of this crazy South Florida boom in the 1920s is even depicted in some of the later episodes of the series Boardwalk Empire, by the way. There was an absolutely crazy real estate bubble in South Florida in the 1920s, especially in the Miami area. As the South Florida bubble proceeded to inflate, land from the Coastal Ridge area eastward to the coast was all bought up and priced out of most people's reach, and so people began to look increasingly westward to the edges of the Everglades, and towns such as Hialeah and Opelaka and others were founded west of the Coastal Ridge on land that had only relatively recently been drained. But progress on the actual drainage efforts had slowed almost to a stall. The state government of Florida was then dominated by North Floridians, who were generally not eager to spend huge amounts of state money on a South Florida project. And in the 1920s, the Army Corps of Engineers wasn't really that interested in doing major drainage projects. 
Now, in many ways, Florida experienced the Roaring Twenties more intensely than much of the rest of the country, especially in terms of the real estate bubble, as well as the kind of prohibition aspect. And the latter, of course, because Florida's gigantic coastline, much of which was pretty uninhabited in the 1920s, made it a favorite destination for rum runners bringing booze into the U.S. from the Caribbean. And its proximity to Cuba was important in this regard, too, because many affluent American tourists would pass through Florida on their way to Cuba. This was actually the beginning of American tourism to Cuba being a big deal, something that would continue right up through Castro's takeover in 1959. And in the 1920s, a lot of the initial impetus behind American tourism to Cuba was due to the fact that booze was still illegal in Cuba. And so a lot of high quality booze was available cheaply in Cuba that in the United States would be very difficult and expensive to try to get. But while Florida, especially South Florida, the region that had boomed the most in the 1920s, really experienced the roaring, roaring 20s very intensely. They also experienced the bust, both earlier and more intensely than many other parts of the country. And in a lot of ways, Florida got a head start on the Great Depression. Basically, what happened was what you might call a series of unfortunate events clobbered Florida before the stock market crash happened and took the rest of the country down. So in October of 1925, there was a major railroad strike that hit Florida's railroad system and led to problems getting building materials down to South Florida, which caused problems for the continual growth of the real estate and construction boom. And the disrupted railroads also caused problems for tourists trying to get to Florida, to South Florida, because that was still the main way to get down there. Then in January 1926, a huge ship sank in Miami Harbor that took a long time for them to clear out, and this closed down the port, which was the other main way to get down there. So these two things together were significantly damaging the economy of South Florida. And then in September of 1926, a massive hurricane clobbered South Florida that we'll talk more about in a second. At this time, bank runs and bank failures began to occur in parts of Florida well before they occurred in the rest of the country as part of the overall Great Depression. Now, there was a slight improvement in things in 27 and 28, but then in September of 1928, another giant hurricane clobbered South Florida. And then in April of 1929, the Mediterranean fruit fly showed up in Florida and wreaked havoc on Florida's citrus crops, another major part of its economy. So by the time the stock market crash and the nationwide Great Depression really kicked into full gear in the fall of 1929, it was like Florida had already been beaten to a pulp and the stock market crash just simply gave him a good groin kick or maybe a curb stomp. Now, in terms of our story here of draining the Everglades, the two key events from that series of unfortunate events were the giant hurricanes of 1926 and 28. So over the course of the summer of 1926, heavy rains hit South Florida, which, you know, happens very often in the summer there. And Lake Okeechobee's water levels were starting to get high. And some people were urging Fred Elliott, the chief engineer, to drain out some of the water. But he apparently thought it would be a bad idea. For some reason, he seemed to think that a drought might be just around the corner, so they should conserve some water. And in fact, he told a newspaper that South Florida, quote, was safer from flood or overflow than any other place in the state of Florida I know of, end quote. 
South Florida caught the edge of a rather small hurricane in July, but the U.S. Weather Service's chief meteorologist in Florida assured people in South Florida that they shouldn't be concerned. Then, early on September 17th, reports came in of a major storm headed for the Bahamas, but it was predicted to not hit Florida. Later that night, Miami was clobbered by the worst hurricane it's ever experienced in recorded history. A giant storm whose gusts went up to 140 miles per hour, accompanied by a storm surge of 15 feet. After nearly leveling much of Miami and Miami Beach and causing huge amounts of damage to other South Florida towns, the storm went northwestward right towards Lake Okeechobee. The lake flooded, and the winds were mostly pushing kind of southward at that point, so it easily overcame the pretty flimsy dike that had been built along the southern part of Lake Okeechobee between it and all those agricultural communities that had sprung up. As a result, when the lake came through the dike, many homes were crushed by winds and then flooded. Michael Grunwald sums up what had happened as follows, quote, In its natural state, Lake Okeechobee had regularly overflowed its southern rim, harmlessly spreading across the entire Everglades during thunderstorms as well as hurricanes. But the dike, designed to imprison Mother Nature so that people could live in her original path, had only concentrated her fury, gathering the lake's floodwaters until they burst toward their natural destination with explosive force. The people in the floodplain paid the price. The 1926 hurricane killed nearly 400 and left more than 40,000 homeless. End quote. Believe it or not, some state and local leaders, including the governor of Florida and the mayor of Miami, actually tried to keep out relief workers, such as the Red Cross, in the aftermath of the storm. Because they were concerned that if the rest of the nation realized how bad the storm had really been, it might harm South Florida's economy, which was increasingly turning into what it is to this day, relying on growth as its perpetual motion machine. In the aftermath of this storm, Fred Elliott planned to build sturdier dikes around Lake Okeechobee and to increase the number and the size of the outlets that led out of the lake, the canals. He tried to get federal support for this, but for the moment didn't find either the Corps of Engineers or the Congress very supportive. Now, in 1927 and early 1928, things seemed to be improving, and part of it was there was some favorable weather, and there were some advances in fertilizers, and so in particular, vegetable agriculture south of Lake Okeechobee, one of the few places in America where you could grow lots of vegetables in the winter, really experienced kind of a mini boom. And in particular, a large number of black people began moving to the area in order to take advantage of the opportunities working these vegetable growing areas. But in the summer of 1928, rains again raised the level of Lake Okeechobee. And on September 16th, another hurricane comparable to the power of the one that had hit in 1926 collided with South Florida. Now, this one struck a bit further north, the heart of it really hitting the Palm Beach area before again barreling right towards Lake Okeechobee. Again, the lake broke through and overflowed the dikes, and again, the communities directly south of it were flooded. The African Americans who'd moved there, many of whom lived in pretty rudimentary shacks in the lower-lying areas, were especially hard hit by this. And some of this is depicted in the famous Zora Neale Hurston novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. 
This time, around 2,500 people were killed by the hurricane, most of them poor black agricultural laborers who live south of Lake Okeechobee. Now, you might think at this point, rational people would conclude that there are certain places where it's maybe not a good idea to live, and certainly maybe not a good idea for a lot of people to live. New Orleans, the sides of volcanoes, etc., these sorts of places, right? But of course, what's the American attitude towards areas where clearly there shouldn't be a lot of people? Well, if disaster strikes, what you do is you rebuild it even bigger in the face of natural disaster, and then when a bigger disaster hits down the road, you act surprised. Michael Grunwald illustrates this mindset with an interesting story, quote, The Red Cross announced at a tent meeting in Belle Glade that it would offer emergency relief but would not help rebuild flood-prone homes and communities in the Everglades. The resulting backlash spread nationwide, forcing the organization to reverse its sensible policy. No matter how many disfigured corpses were floating in the Everglades, it was blasphemy to suggest the abandonment of the swamp, end quote. You know, kind of calls to mind New Orleans gets clobbered by a hurricane, and instead of going, maybe we shouldn't have a giant city in such a terrible location, what's the American response? We'll build it back bigger, nicer, more expensive than ever before. Well, that was pretty much the attitude of people in Florida at the time. Places clearly flood-prone, well, just rebuild them bigger. Now, at this point, the state of Florida was basically broke, but still wanted to pursue the path of massive development in the Everglades region. So Fred Elliott and the state government of Florida redoubled their efforts to get the feds to come in and help. The head of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at the time was a man named General Edgar Jadwin, and he was still personally skeptical of this whole thing. But in the fall of 1928, he accompanied President-elect Herbert Hoover, who was an engineer himself by background, on a trip down to Lake Okeechobee in that area, during which Hoover was convinced to support massive flood control efforts in and around Lake Okeechobee. Now, Herbert Hoover, contrary to many popular depictions, was actually in many ways a big-time, big-government progressive. And as such, he not only believed that government could solve economic and social problems, but he also wholeheartedly believed in the progressive credo of the time of using government power to quote-unquote fix nature as well. And again, Michael Grunwald, to his credit, very honestly admits this, quote, Today... Hoover is often caricatured as a do-nothing president who fiddled while the Depression burned. But while Hoover was no new dealer, he was an indefatigable man of action, a can-do engineer infused with the fix-it mentality of his profession. As president, he would spend more on public works than all his predecessors combined, especially flood control projects like the Hoover Dam, which combined his great humanitarian desire to ease suffering with his great engineer desire to defeat Mother Nature, end quote. By the way, just as a side note, if you want more on Hoover in particular in terms of his response to the Great Depression that shows that he was far from a laissez-faire, do-nothing guy when it came to that, a good place to start is America's Great Depression by Murray Rothbard. In fact, during his presidency, Herbert Hoover did more than any other president before him who presided over an economic downturn to try and quote-unquote fix it using government power. The fact that FDR then came in after him and did more 
shouldn't blind us to the fact that Hoover was very much a progressive and very far from being a doctrinaire, laissez-faire guy. The fact that he was just a little bit more hesitant on a few things than FDR shouldn't obscure that he was no, you know, Grover Cleveland or anything like that. Over the next 10 years, basically over most of the 1930s, the Army Corps of Engineers put $20 million, 95% of which was federal money, into a massive buildup of Lake Okeechobee's dike, which was renamed the Herbert Hoover Dike, and was made four stories tall and hundreds of feet wide, just huge. Now, a key thing to keep in mind, um, in light of my upcoming episode zeroing in on Big Sugar, this project was one of the most important keys in setting the groundwork for the rise of the sugarcane kingdom south of Lake Okeechobee. In other words, even the creation of the agricultural area itself was a heavily subsidized government project. In the aftermath of this dike enlargement, water was largely cut off from flowing from the lake into the Everglades. And so the Everglades naturally began to dry up, a process that was made even worse by the ever-increasing spread of invasive trees, such as Australian pine and melaleuca. Big pieces of the Everglades in the 1930s began turning into basically a dust bowl, and there were massive disruptions caused all throughout the ecosystem in terms of the flora and the fauna due to water shortages, and there would be natural fires in the Everglades when it was in its natural state that would be triggered by lightning strikes when things were a little bit dry, and they would usually burn briefly and kind of just, you know, certain areas, and it was a natural part of periodically regenerating the Everglades. But in this new era of drought and dust bowl conditions caused by damming up Lake Okeechobee, these fires would turn into huge blazes that seemed to burn forever. In fact, a New York newspaper report from the 1930s described it as follows, quote, Citizens of Florida came to the sudden realization recently that a vast part of the southern end of their state was on fire, end quote. Around a million acres burned in 1939 alone, and the resulting smoke of this shut down roads in the region and even caused smoke-related problems for Miami residents. The Indians who still were living in the Everglades up to this point mostly left when all this went down. One Indian leader summed it up as follows at the time, quote, the breath maker made the Everglades. Water was good, lots of turtles, fish, deer, turkey, all we needed. White people messed it up, so we couldn't live with nature anymore, end quote. And this is when most of those who had previously lived in and around the Everglades relocated to federal reservations elsewhere. So, for example, that big um, seminal reservation in Broward County where the Hard Rock Cafe is and all that stuff, those are the descendants of people who used to live out in the Everglades until it started to get really damaged. Now, by this time, some people, at least, were starting to take an attitude towards the Everglades that was more in line with what we might call a preservationist view than a wise conservationist view, including the writer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who'd previously been pretty supportive of ideas of reclamation. A movement to create a national park encompassing some significant portion of the Everglades had been around since the 1920s, and in the late 30s and into the 40s, it gathered more and more support. The key figure in this was a landscape designer named Ernest Coe, 
who was a Yale-educated guy who moved to South Florida to work just in time for the crash of the mid-20s. And he found himself kind of out of work and began spending a lot of time in the Everglades. And he really grew to love it, and he didn't like what was happening to it. So he became the main mover and shaker in getting the federal government to um, create an Everglades National Park. He even at one point arranged for some key federal people to tour the Everglades from the Goodyear blimp. And even though Coe himself spent the ride barfing his guts out from air sickness, the other passengers apparently enjoyed it and came to support the creation of the park. Coe's proposed boundaries for the park were very large, well over 2 million acres, much larger than what the park eventually became. It included not only the kind of central heart of the Everglades, but such areas as the 10,000 Islands, Florida Bay, Big Cypress Swamp, and even some of the Florida Keys. But to get the park actually created, political compromises, which really pissed off Coe, ended up making the park much smaller. In fact, only a little more than half the size of what Coe had proposed. Battles over all these details, plus the pretty big distraction of World War II, prevented the park from being created until 1947. In December of that year, which is a nice time to be in the Everglades, as opposed to, like, August, President Harry Truman attended the dedication ceremony of the park. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Ernest Coe were also there. Coe had originally planned to boycott it in protest of the park being so much smaller than what he'd thought it should have been, but then he ultimately changed his mind and went anyway. But the real final solution to the Everglades problem was still yet to come. In fact, ironically, the same year that Everglades National Park was created, 1947, Things happened and were put into motion to further damage the source of the very water that made the Everglades what they were, that gave them life and made them that unique ecosystem. Not only was the same presidential administration, namely Truman's, behind both, but in particular, Senator Spessard Holland of Florida, who was also a former governor of Florida, a key figure in getting the park created, was also to play a key role in getting the federal government to undertake the massive project that would undermine the Everglades' health even further. Because what happened was, in 1947, a large amount of flooding hit South Florida, whose population, by the way, at the time, was starting to undergo another massive boom in the aftermath of World War II. This is the boom that Florida social historian Gary Marmino refers to as Florida's Big Bang. In the decades following World War II, the population of Florida was growing at a rate four times faster than that of the country as a whole, and approximately a thousand people were moving to Miami each week during this era. So these floods hit South Florida. No one died as a result of them, but there was a fair amount of property damage and inconvenience for residents, and in particular, over $50 million in agricultural losses occurred. So in the aftermath of this, Team America was determined to win their war on the wetlands of South Florida once and for all. A comprehensive report by the Corps of Engineers was done in the aftermath of the floods, and it laid out the plan. Historian David McCauley writes this about the mindset behind this, quote, The Allied victory in World War II had given birth to two contradictory ideas in American politics. First, America and its political leaders took great pride from their triumph. And the victory did much to convince Americans of the ability of the federal government to achieve great ends. 
But amidst this post-war pride and optimism lingered a second idea. That is, a great fear that the end of wartime production meant a return of economic hard times. Taken together, these ideas combined to bring unprecedented federal involvement in South Florida water management as the Corps conceived of the final solution to the district's perennial water control problem. End quote. This 1947 comprehensive report would divide the overall Everglades into several different parts. First, the Everglades agricultural area, which would be the area just south of Lake Okeechobee, where the soil ran the deepest and where, of course, sugarcane was increasingly becoming a big deal. It would also create three water conservation areas further south to hold water, and this was done in places where there was considered to be not enough soil for agriculture to really work. And in practice, these would ultimately end up being just sort of like swamps. And then, of course, would be, last, the Everglades National Park, where, theoretically, things would be protected and allowed to remain in their natural state. Now, there would be dikes separating all of these zones from each other, punctuated by spillways and pumping stations from which the engineers could play God and transfer water from one zone to another as they saw fit. In the words of David McCauley, quote, These water control structures would ensure that the agricultural area could maintain its optimum water level in times of either drought or flood, and they would also maintain enough water in the conservation areas to recharge the Biscayne Aquifer, which is where much of South Florida's water came from, by the way. With enough left over, the Corps assured naturalists to supply the needs of the national park. Advocates of the plan insisted that the new water control works would eliminate the ills associated with both flooding and too much aridity that had plagued the Everglades since the inception of drainage in 1906, end quote. Now, I can't help but point out the parallel between this thinking that technocrats could play God and run nature better than nature could, and the reigning economic orthodoxies of the time, which was basically the notion that economic technocrats could manage the economy better than market forces could. It's the same mindset as those who are like, yes, well, using the Phillips curve and Keynesian economic theory, we can eliminate the business cycle and we can just have endless prosperity. It's the same thing here. You know, the same mindset as thinking you can simply smooth out the business cycle through manipulating the economy. Well, here it's the same can-do GI generation technocrat mindset applied to smoothing out the water cycle. You're in an area that tends to naturally go through periods of wet and dry, and you're trying to make it so that it's constant. It's a constant kind of middle ground the whole time. Well, in both cases, the arrogance is going to cause unintended problems. But anyway, despite the floods it still looked like politically certain parts of this plan were going to be difficult to get past. But then a bad hurricane hit South Florida in September of 1947, and that kind of took the fire out of the opposition. The project would take over two decades to complete, and in that time, South Florida's population exploded even more than it ever had before, creating yet more problems around the water question. This massive project, the majority of it was paid for by the federal government. So basically, the feds are coming in where not only had private rich guys failed to make a dent in the Everglades, but even the state government had only done a little bit. Well, now Team America's on the job. 
So in 1948, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers officially began what they called the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control Project, which is oftentimes just abbreviated as the CNSF project or simply the CNSF. This project would end up being the largest earth-moving project in the world since the building of the Panama Canal. Polls showed that over 90% of South Florida residents supported the project. Even Marjorie Stoneman Douglas did, at least initially, because she believed the story that it would actually be good for the Everglades National Park by making sure that it got enough water. By 1952, the project had completed the perimeter levee and canal that ran along the eastern edge of the Everglades in Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade counties, which are the southernmost three counties of mainland southeast Florida. And so these canals and levees essentially like walling off the Everglades from the suburban sprawl that was sprouting up. From 1955 to 1962, work took place on partitioning off the agricultural and water storage areas of the region and with the installation of huge pumping stations to allow engineers to control the water flow in which, in the words of geography professor Gail M. Hollander, quote, gave the Everglades landscape a distinctly industrial cast, end quote. Some concerns about environmental issues in the early 60s didn't slow things down. But one thing temporarily did. Michael Grunwald writes, quote, The only warnings that slowed down the CNSF project at all were accusations that it would reclaim giant parcels of land for millionaires, warnings that happened to be true, end quote. So, for example, 100,000 acres owned by Arthur Vining Davis of the Alcoa Corporation and 130,000 acres owned by the U.S. Sugar Corporation benefited hugely by all the dikes, canals, and so on. The people on the board of running the CNSF project, including its chairman, were people who stood to personally profit and benefit from the work. In fact, land prices near the Glades and Lake Okeechobee boomed as the project went on. Grunwald writes, quote, As land prices skyrocketed, some congressmen questioned why the feds were paying more than three-fifths of the cost of a Florida real estate scam, end quote. And as things went on, such companies as U.S. Steel, Westinghouse, and Chrysler, to name a few, bought real estate in reclaimed former Everglades wetlands. And revelations about some of this stuff caused Congress to slow the project down, but they didn't stop it. As a result, the project ended up being done later than projected, but it was done. Perhaps not surprisingly, in light of who was running things, the people who were controlling the water apparatus almost always tended to give, by far, overwhelming priority to the cities and to agriculture, never to the Everglades National Park or other undeveloped parts of the system. Even during periods where there was abundant water, the park often got shortchanged, and certainly in areas where there was drought, the park was basically up a creek, albeit up a very dry creek. As the Everglades National Park continually deteriorated, people were starting to be bothered by it. Florida journalist Ernest Lyons became very dismayed at what was happening, and he wrote of it, quote, South Florida started out with a marvelous flood control plan. Nature designed it. But being human, we just couldn't leave it alone. During dry seasons, private individuals farmed or built areas where old-timers knew inundation was as inevitable as death and taxes. 
Then the rains came. We called on government to take over and operate, with sweeping alterations, the magnificent system God had given us. Now we are calling on government to be the very God, by the creation of a huge artificial system of dams, pumps, man-made lakes, and controls, which must be maintained in perpetuity." Again, I would point out the analogy between this and an increasingly planned and regulated economy. I would also point out how very anti-Daoist this whole thing is. Of Let's build a concrete wall cordoning off various parts of this ecosystem, and let's micromanage the water flow. By the end of the 1960s, despite all the massive building that had taken place, much of South Florida actually still oscillated between flood and drought, between too much water and not enough. So again, kind of reminds me of, hey, we'll put these things in place to smooth out the business cycle, and next thing you know, it gets worse. Drought hit the area in the mid-60s, and by this time, the CNSF had built what they called Levy 29, which kind of ran along the Tamiami Trail, which was roughly the northern boundary of the actual Everglades National Park. Levy 29's pumping stations were literally the gatekeepers of how much, if any, water would be allowed to flow into the park. In the mid-60s drought, the engineers, of course, as always under political pressure, kept water out of the park, giving priority to urban and suburban and agricultural needs, and as a result, a lot of the animal species in the park were absolutely decimated. In fact, worse than decimated, because as many of you probably know, decimated technically only means suffered losses of 10% killed. Many species suffered far, far worse than that. Meanwhile... During periods when the engineers did allow some water to flow south into the Everglades National Park, the waters that flowed in contained significant amounts of runoff from sugarcane and other agricultural activities up in the Everglades Agricultural Area, which again was immediately south of Okeechobee, right in between the lake and the actual Everglades National Park. This runoff significantly altered the chemical makeup of the glades' water and led to massive problems for the glades' plant life. As a result, by the late 1960s, the Everglades National Park was the U.S. park system's most messed up and in trouble park, ecologically speaking. Development of suburbs, meanwhile, continually pushed westward in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, and so you ended up with this cycle of development where each new wave of westward expansion would create the demand for more flood control, and each new flood control measure that dried out more areas would then create the conditions for more westward development. In 1972, the Florida legislature created something called the South Florida Water Management District, or SFWMD, which would be in charge of managing water from Orlando all the way down to the Florida Keys, including areas in 16 of Florida's counties. Today, by the way, the SFWMD controls almost 2,000 miles of canals and nearly 3,000 miles of dikes and berms, as well as 69 pumping stations and over 700 culverts. You have a very, very, very artificial water flow system from central Florida all the way down to the bottom of south Florida. Now, by the late 60s and into the 1970s, a lot of public opinion, both in Florida and nationwide, was becoming more and more skeptical of things such as massive projects to drain wetlands and straighten rivers and whatever. And the concept of protecting nature for its own sake started to become a thing, not just the belief of a handful of weirdos. Beginning in that time period, late 60s and early 70s, some politicians 
began to respond to this, including even some people from both parties in Florida. But it's really an open question, honestly, whether anything at this point could really be done to really undo the damage, especially considering how many millions and millions of people now live directly on land that used to be a vital part of the Everglades being the Everglades. I mean, basically, if you know South Florida geography, Anything in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County that's west of I-95 is on land that used to be in some way part of the Everglades and at least some of the time was wetland. And if you know how much development, especially in the last 40 or 50 years, has just gone way west of where 95 is, you understand that like to really, truly restore the Everglades would require moving out millions of people. And politically, that's simply not going to happen. So in a practical sense, for the foreseeable future, possibly indefinitely, it's simply not possible to revert the Everglades ecosystem back to its original state. There's simply too many people living on land that nature intended to be wet. And there's simply too much artificial infrastructure now there in terms of canals, dams, etc. And it hasn't been doing well. Much of the promises of the Flood control project were not delivered on other than it would dry up more areas to have even more development and it would ensure that agriculture, especially sugar, would always have whatever water they wanted. By the 1990s, over half the wetlands that had previously existed in Florida were no longer really wetlands. The sugar industry, however, did very well, despite the fact that runoff from its fertilizer was doing massive damage, and mercury showed up in the water of the Everglades, and the State Game and Freshwater Fish Commission said that it wouldn't be long until humans wouldn't be able to eat fish from the Everglades. Various pieces of legislation have come out of the state and federal, and federal level to try and quote-unquote fix or improve or restore the Everglades. So, for example, in 1994, Florida passed the Everglades Forever Act, which was largely focused on various ways to try and improve the quality of the water going into the Everglades by doing things like reducing the mercury, phosphorus, and other pollutants. And there was some significant improvement made on the water quality front relatively soon after the act was passed. But of course, that's only one angle of the problem. Also in the 1990s, a state commission reported that basically South Florida's development path that it was on was simply not sustainable, not, not even just for the natural environment, but for the people themselves. And that the amount of environmental damage that was happening was already starting to negatively impact the quality of human life in the region, and that this ultimately would damage the region's economy, so much of which is based on, hey, come down here, it's a nice laid-back tropical paradise. A strategy was developed to try to deal with some of this by undoing some of the changes that had been done to the region since the 1940s, though, of course, politically, there is no way you could actually undo all of the changes, again, given how many millions of people, including some wealthy special interests, were now parked on former Everglades land. Now, plan was put together known as the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, and this was passed by Congress in late 2000 and signed into law by then lame duck President Bill Clinton in December. Interestingly, Florida Governor Jeb Bush attended the ceremony at the very same time that his brother George W. was busy in legal battles of Bush versus Gore in the aftermath of the 2000 election, much of which centered around Florida. Now, the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan 
planned to spend a little over $8 billion, or what the Pentagon burns through in a couple of days, I think, over 30 years to try to restore at least some of the Everglades ecosystem back to something approaching or approximating its original condition. But at this point, the system ultimately revolved around human intervention, around a centrally planned ecosystem. It simply could not and would not be allowed to revert back to its genuinely natural state. The real change was simply that the central planners of Florida Water, the Army Corps of Engineers and SFWMD, would now make, quote-unquote, restoring the Everglades more of a priority in their decisions about water relative to development and agriculture than it had been previously. But at the end of the day, they'd still control the water. Since then, progress on the actual physical process of implementing this uh, Everglades restoration plan has been highly questionable, in part because of kind of typical government slowness, and in part because of legal and political battles connected to this. So, for example, a 2008 study by the U.S. National Research Council concluded that relatively little had actually been done since 2000 on the project. A 2012 study by the same organization concluded again that relatively little had been done, especially in terms of things that really benefited the, like, the, the kind of heart of the Everglades proper. That same report, by the way, also specifically looked at 10 key environmental indicators and gave most of them grades of C's and D's and 1F. A 2014 study by the Congressional Research Service concluded that the program would actually end up taking at least $10 billion and would likely take more like 50 years to complete rather than 30. So again, kind of typical government in many ways, whether it's the war in Iraq or whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, what they tell you it's going to cost and how difficult they tell you it's going to be and how long it's going to take always ends up being pretty different from what it ends up actually costing, how long it ends up taking, what it really accomplishes, etc. So that's the story of how the Everglades got to be as fucked up and fucked with as it is. Private interests were happy to push for draining the Everglades, and they were happy to do their best to profit from it once it was done, but they weren't able to actually do it. Even the state government of Florida wasn't up to the task. When push came to shove, it would be the ultimate leviathan of North America, namely the U.S. federal government. It would take Uncle Sam to do this because only Uncle Sam could concentrate enough resources through coercion, meaning taxation, money printing, and running up debt for future people to pay, to cover this project. And only Uncle Sam could do this without really worrying about the cost and whether or not the profits from using reclaimed glades lands for things would actually exceed the cost of draining it in the first place. It's true that developers and agribusiness interests would pay, through taxes, for some of the building and maintenance of all the infrastructure of drainage. But it's also true that they socialized a hell of a lot of the costs onto the taxpayers of Florida and the U.S. as a whole. At the same time, those corporate interests that benefited from these projects would use tax breaks and other government subsidies to offset or perhaps even entirely recoup whatever small amounts they had contributed to these things that benefited them through taxes. In other words, in my opinion, this is a classic example 
of public choice economics in a lot of ways, of concentrated private profits with dispersed socialized costs. And you can see episode, or I should say listen to, episode 110 of the DHP, which is part of my 21 Key Concepts and Theory series, and that's where I talk a bit in depth about public choice economics. But at the end of the day, the federal government was absolutely indispensable in draining the swamp in the first place. No private actor could have done so. And even if they somehow had been able to, it would have been so onerously costly that it would have been impossible for them to really make a profit from whatever the hell they did with the land after they drained it. It's the ability of a Leviathan to concentrate wealth and power and to not have to worry about things like profitability that is at the root of a lot of the most large-scale environmental disasters. Not saying that there aren't some that you can pin on individual small actors or whatever, but very often it doesn't take long to find some form or another of government involved with something like this. And again, I just can't help but mention one more time how interesting it is to me, at least, the parallels between the faith that economic technocrats can plan and manage an economy better than a freed-up marketplace could, and the faith that engineering technocrats can plan and manage a huge, infinitely complex ecosystem better than nature can. Ironically, the very things that were enticing to people and that made them want to visit or even move to Florida are the very things that are eroded and extinguished by bringing in ever-increasing numbers of tourists and residents to the state without ever thinking about at what point will enough be enough and at what point will enough be too much. In other words, over the course of the 20th century, development has been killing the very reason that people wanted to come to Florida in the first place. It's a troubling catch-22. You have this beautiful, pristine place full of beautiful tropical nature, and then everybody wants to come in and pave the whole damn thing. Well, who the hell really wants to live in a broiling hot and humid concrete jungle? As historian David McCauley eloquently and perceptively explains in regard to South Florida and the Everglades, quote, like the lover who embraces his or her beloved in spite of the other's flaws. Americans have drawn Florida into their hearts, secure in the knowledge that the state's shortcomings could be corrected over time. But as so many lovers have discovered, correcting shortcomings too often destroys the very qualities that excited passions in the first place. Similarly, in Florida, the attraction of an exotic world excited dreams that led to the destruction of the very stuff upon which the dream rested, and the Everglades, the most exotic feature of South Florida, endured the most thoroughgoing restructuring of all. End quote. Thanks for listening. In the relatively near future, I'm going to do a DHP episode with the working title of Rise of the Cane Kingdom, and I'll probably stay with that because it's a cool title. And in that one, I'm going to be specifically zeroing in on the rise of Big Sugar as a very successful special interest in Florida and how they've become such masters of corporate welfare and political wheeling and dealing. Also in the works for the relatively near future, work continues on part two of the Naval Not-So-Civil War Patreon bonus miniseries. And work also continues as well on the next regular 
not-so-Civil War DHP installment, which will be the grunt's eye view in which I will look at the war from the perspective of kind of the rank-and-file soldiers and low-level officers. So all that and more on the horizon. Again, some of these things end up taking more time to research and plan than I originally expect. And I really appreciate everyone's patience and support as I do my best to really do what it takes to follow the muse and to follow the threads of different sources and to really do my best to give you high quality content. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousHistoryPodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.